everybody. This is Wayne, and this is the Green Pill Podcast. And our conversation today is with Jane Velez Mitchell, a journalist who has been working within the mainstream media for most of her adult career. She was an anchor at CNN Headline News before that at Court TV. She has spent her entire life trying to tell the story of what's unfolding in our society to people like you and me. And at a time where trust in the media has dropped precipitously, I can't think of anybody better than Jane to talk to about why that's happening, because Jane has been on both sides of that equation. She's been in the media, but about 10 years ago, she decided to basically become a grassroots activist, to start a communications platform called Unchain that focused on bringing attention to an issue that the mainstream media didn't have much interest in paying attention to, namely animal rights. But one of the reasons I trust Jane a lot is because she is a almost shockingly open and vulnerable person. And you're going to hear this conversation pivot into a subject that's deeply personal with with Jane's struggles with addiction. And while this might not seem obviously related to the main reason I wanted to talk to her, which is about media, journalism, and so on, I think there's a very important connection. It's this, that one of the reasons we don't trust the media is because they're not being real with us. And that's one thing that you don't have to worry about with Jane. And one of the reasons why I started this podcast because we wanted to do something that's a little more real. So anyways, I, I think the conversation speaks with, with, for itself. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And without further ado, here's Jane. Jane, thanks so much <laughs> for being on the podcast. It's been a while since I was here. I haven't seen you since the pandemic. How are you holding on, first of all? You're just saying you're one of the few people who seems to have enjoyed the last two years. Well, I didn't enjoy it. I, I used it as a growth experience. Uh-huh. I kind of tried to regard it as a retreat. People have asked me from time to time, have you ever done a retreat? So now I could say, yeah, I've been on a retreat for two years. But when you go on a retreat, you usually go with other people. In the pandemic, we're all alone. (laughs) I went on a retreat with myself. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like you and I are similar people in a lot of ways and that I'm super extroverted and love high energy. And you were just talking about how you always have FOMO. And I'm the same way. I mean, someone's doing something cool. I want to be there. And last two years for me were awful. <laughs> really? Yeah. You know, um, so March 16th hit, and March 16th was the day that the the lockdown in California happened. Something wrong with the camera. Oh. Well, it seems like it's dropping, and that was worrying me. I'm so sorry. Oh, no. This is actually the second time on this tour that I, I caused mass mayhem. I, <laughs> what? A dog. So I've been doing a bunch of podcasts. This uh-huh. is the second time I messed up a podcast. Cause oh, you didn't A couple days that. ago, I was doing a podcast with Zoe Rosenberg and Shurston. Oh. And their dog jumped on the table. And I decided it would be smart to try and pick up a 90-pound dog from the table who didn't want to be picked up. And he kicks and knocks every single one of the mics over. The recorder goes flying and it's mass mayhem and it was all recorded. So it's pretty funny. Oh, yeah. But, I've done that too. Once I had everything set up. I'm no technical person. I was an yeah. on-camera talent and I had everything set up for my Voice America and I reached to get something and everything, including the computer, <laughs> me and everything went just crashing <laughs> over to the side. Almost, it comes with the territory. It it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but I was saying that, yeah, the pandemic was pretty awful for me because I'm so used to being around people on March 16th. When the state went into lockdown, I had just created an arrangement with Priya that she'd have the kids, the furry kids, you know, um, the two dogs and a cat in, in her house permanently. Not permanently. I mean, I'd see them, but, yeah. um, and then a week after the pandemic, I went through a breakup. And so I'm sitting at this house. I have not lived without other living creatures for any time in my adult life. Like never. I've always had dogs, cats, other human beings. Um, and obviously when you live in the Bay Area and you don't make a huge amount of income, you live with a ton of other people. 
And, you know, for the first two months of the pandemic, I'm just staring at walls like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> and it was very scary back then because you didn't even know you could go to the grocery store. So you didn't go and hang out with people. It's not like you said hi in the park. You stayed away from everybody for those first two months when we didn't know what was going on. So, yeah, it's been awful. But I'm glad things are back because it does so much for me to be around animals and human beings. Well, can I say something sure. that strikes me? You're perhaps the most courageous person no, I know. No. Absolutely. <laughs> no. Absolutely. And it's kind of heartening that you were challenged by the pandemic because I would think, given everything you've gone through, that that would just be like, next, yeah. no biggie. So it's it's interesting to see other people's humanity and how they struggle too. Because sometimes when people are really courageous, really yeah. strong, you they say all comparison leads to sorrow, right? Yeah. So uh, it's really good to see behind the mask. I yeah, just yeah. watched Andy Warhol diaries. And what was so extraordinary as they're reading his diary is that his genius is his transparency and honesty. Mm. He talks about all his insecurities, not once, but Page after page, sentence after sentence, I feel like a loser. I'm not directly quoting. But the, he talks about his low self-esteem, his yeah. insecurities, his jealousy. And it was genius because very few people do that. Very sure. few people let you see inside what's really going on. Yeah. There's beauty in transformation and openness. And I feel like this is something we need to teach the animal agriculture industry. Instead of passing all these ag-gag laws and trying to put people in prison... And, and lobbying legislatures to, you know, subsidize the industry and prevent anyone from finding out what's happening. Why not just be open? And at the end of the day, if you really believe in what you, you're doing, you will be open about it because you're proud of what you're doing. And all of us can learn a lesson from that, too. But. Well, there's greenwashing, there's whitewashing, there's uh, propaganda. Mm -hmm. And propaganda exists when the reality is awful and you need to cover it up and mm -hmm. make a story and this is true, obviously, throughout history. Yeah. Uh, whoever is oppressed, they create a storyline that tries to make it like, oh, it's a great experience, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we have to be on guard for that. We want to buy into the fairy tales. Sure. We want to buy into the fairy tales because it's easier. And we can say, oh, it's, there's no problem here. I can go on and live my life and reap the benefits of somebody's uh, exploitation and I don't have to look at it because, oh, they've given me a fairy tale and I can just go with that fairy tale. Yeah. And so we, we really have to be on guard for that. And throughout history, I mean, there's obviously so many examples. I don't need to bring them up, but, for sure. uh, they're, uh, now when we go back and look at them through the lens of history, we see how horrifying they are. And a yeah. lot of books, for example, that were considered classics and just, oh, brilliant classic novels are now, Ugh, yeah. gross, right? Uh, how disgusting. I mean, like Gone with the Wind comes to mind, yeah. you know? Uh, so uh, that's really something that we have to be on guard for as human beings, not just in the animal rights movement in general. What kind of storyline are we being sold about what we're engaging in to, to allow us to justify our behavior so we can continue on? And, you know, we have a moral obligation to look at it and say, yeah. wait, is this real? Yeah. What was it about Gone with the Wind that you thought was kind of... Well, I mean, it's a, it's a white... It's a uh, it's glorification of a system of slavery. Hmm. 
I uh, confess, I don't know if I've seen the entire oh, movie. <laughs> well, it's a it's a book by Margaret Mitchell. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, which, but it's a movie you know, too, right? Oh yeah, it's okay. a classic <laughs> movie with. Uh, okay. Yeah. Rhett Butler. Vivian Lee. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah some, I, um, I know about yeah. it. I've read yeah. about it, but I don't think I've actually ever seen yeah. the movie. Yeah, but it's, so it's just it's a like required, required reading when I was growing up in school. Interesting. Now we need to deconstruct so wait, that. This is a movie, so it's made in the 20th century, and it still glorifies slavery? It's like a... Yeah, well, you know, uh, this is, it, it, there's many examples throughout history okay. where we have to look at propaganda and, and dissect it and see it for what it is. Yeah, and I think one of the hard things about the current media climate, and this actually segues into the, the first question I'm going to ask you, is that it's hard to know what to trust. You know, yes. There's so much out there that's disinformation, and, and the reality is I think most of us have very real and legitimate critiques of the mainstream media, but we also know that you can't believe everything you hear on YouTube, right? There's so much just nonsense on YouTube. So I guess, I mean, that, that is actually my first question. As someone who has been in the mainstream media, you worked as an anchor on CNN Headline News, you had a, a show, I think it was just called Jane Velez Mitchell, right? It was called Issues with Jane Velez Mitchell, issues and I said, great, because I've got a lot of issues. You do have a lot of issues you want to talk about, <laughs> and they're great issues. And, but then you move to like more, more grassroots activacy orientation and have this great new app you were just showing me called Unchain. I've built Unchained TV. Unchained TV, sorry. No worries. But it's, it's probably the most powerful and influential media platform in animal rights right now. I think, actually, not probably, it just is. So you've kind of seen both sides of it, the, you know, the big corporate, multi-million dollar side of the media industry, and then the grassroots rack that you were telling me you built this entire platform less than $50,000. I mean, that's probably <laughs> like a camera at CNN, right? I mean, maybe not even a camera. Maybe a camera is, the microphone at CNN is $50,000. So, you know, having seen both sides of the media, how do you decide what to trust? Well, uh... In the words of Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience <laughs> be your guide. There you go. And use your common sense and yeah. question everything and question authority. And uh, realize that the people in power are often motivated by power, sure. greed, ego. And they're not saints who are put on this planet to tell you the truth. Yeah. Advertiser-based news media is beholden to the advertisers. Mm -hmm. That is the fundamental fact, and I don't care what you say. If you look at the news today, the vast majority of commercials, in my estimation, yeah. are meat, dairy, and pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. They're fast food, uh, and then there's the pharmaceuticals that you have to take with the horrific side effects that uh, are almost comical if they weren't so tragic. And of course, there's the occasional insurance commercial or car commercial thrown in, but they're the people who pay the bills. You yeah. don't need somebody to knock on your door and say, hey, don't do this story. Do you know that during the pandemic, when slaughterhouse workers were dying of COVID, uh, the word slaughterhouse uh, pretty much never got mentioned, or rarely. They would talk about meatpacking meat uh, meat facilities, food mm -hmm. processing facilities. They did not use the word slaughterhouse. Mm -hmm. Why? Because that would remind people of what's going on in those slaughterhouses, yeah. slaughter. And so right there, there's so many telltale signs. We need to think critically and we need to challenge things. And we need to ask, wait a second, why are they calling it food processing facilities? They're slaughterhouses. Sure. Why do they not show the slaughter line when mm -hmm. they're talking about slaughterhouses? They don't show the killing. Mm -hmm. So... Um, but how do you know when to ask those questions? Because the reality is everyone's inundated with information. And if you're the average consumer out there, 
or citizen just listening to the news and you hear about a meatpacking plant getting closed down, you wouldn't even think about that twice. I mean, you just say, oh, meatpacking plant closed down. So what, I mean, yeah. how do you decide what are the things I need to dive deeper into and question authority? Or do we just question well, look, everything? I actually, mean, that's a hard thing to do for most people who don't have time. Yeah, I, I watch make ends meet. I watch MSNBC mm-hmm. and uh, Rachel Maddow, uh, which took some gumption and courage, did cover the slaughterhouse, slaughterhouse. issue. Really? She covered it extensively over a number of days. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I didn't hear her say slaughterhouse. I heard her say meatpacking yeah. uh, facility. And I actually wrote her an email huh. and I said, uh, Congratulations on the courage to actually discuss this because so many of the uh, corporate media don't even discuss it. I was just curious, you know, why do you have to say meatpacking? That sounds like somebody putting a slice of uh, uh, filet mignon in their purse and going on vacation. Yeah. It's a slaughterhouse. Yeah. Uh, didn't get a rep- reply back, but uh, I do try to congratulate people for the incremental steps that they sure. take when they do the right thing. Yep. She did cover it, I think, more than anybody else. So kudos to that. You know, yeah. Let's give people credit when I wasn't born vegan. I wasn't reporting on animal activism through the ver- early stages of my career. Um, I didn't know better. Mm-hmm. So uh, these are very smart people. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, there is a cultural brainwashing that has occurred that is so powerful that even the smartest people can't see through it. Yeah. I always think about the book, The Best and the Brightest. It was a sarcastic title. The Best and the Brightest brought us the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. the quagmire and the horror of the Vietnam War. Those were the best and the brightest from yeah. the best schools Robert who McNamara. were considered Absolutely. the smartest people on earth. Yeah. And look what they brought us. So people who think, well, I have the answers because I'm part of the intelligentsia. No, no. If you don't have a good moral compass, forget about it. It yeah. doesn't matter how smart you are. Yeah. That actually reminds me of the point you made at the start of this podcast about Andy Warhol, because one way you can know if the best and the brightest are actually getting us to good outcomes and good decisions is whether they're willing to be open. And one thing about the Vietnam War and the best and the brightest in the 1960s, not only were they not open, it's actually a lot like animal agriculture. They did everything they could to crush those who tried to be transparent about what was happening in, in, in Vietnam. Um, you know, Daniel Ellsberg is, is a neighbor of mine in Berkeley. He was the guy who released wow. the Pentagon Papers. Wow. And, um, you know, he was prosecuted for this instead of lauding him and saying, yeah, you know, we probably shouldn't have hidden the fact that we've been lying to the American people about how this war is going. Because there was all this propaganda about how we're winning and, you know, the Vietnam people are greeting us with liberators. And there was no social media back then. And, you know, the on-the-ground reporters who were reporting on the Vietnam War, they only had access to the extent the U.S. military allowed them access. They couldn't just go into Vietnam, into the jungle, and find out what was actually happening. And then it turns out there's all these internal reports when, you know, the cameras are not rolling and the journalists are not listening, where they're talking about, this is a disaster. <laughs> we're having we're napalming entire villages, burning people alive. We're doing everything wrong. The people hate us. We're about to lose this war. And it wasn't until those, those documents were released by the New York Times, and, and there's a famous, very famous Supreme Court decision, that the American public was able to make an informed decision and the right decision to get out of that war, you know, and... That mistake came at the cost of millions and millions of people dying, and not in happy ways. Not in happy ways. But um, I'm going to ask you. Uh, so when it comes to trust, you just said talked about how the incentives in the media are often very skewed, and I definitely saw this too. I was definitely not as involved in the media as, as you have been over the years. But actually, did you know I worked at CNN for one summer? No. Yeah. Did you ever? Wow. Did you ever meet? Um, 
Brooks Jackson by chance? Do you no. Know well, the, you know, it's like a city. Okay. There's yeah, there's thousands. so many people there. So Brooks Jackson was a former Wall Street Journal investigative reporter and came to television because back in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, there was this big move. Everyone thought, oh, CNN is the future, this, this yeah. idea of daily news, cable news, and so on. And he wanted to bring investigative journalism to CNN. So I, I, I worked for somewhere at a, at a, like a national TV outlet, a news outlet, and um, I was just kind of shocked by how much of a struggle it was for, for him to try and do substantive work and how much it was driven by advertising, not the quality of the coverage, not the depth of the coverage, but just how many eyeballs we're going to get. So the segment that I most remember is we we're doing a segment in obesity. And instead of spending a lot of time really trying to dig through the science and interview the right experts and figure out what's causing this obesity epidemic, and it is an epidemic now. I mean, I think it's, I believe it's like 60% of Americans are suffering from obesity. And, you know, like if, if this were caused by some disease, we clearly would be up in arms and saying, hey, folks, we got to figure this out. What's wrong with our food system? What's causing all these people to have this... It's, it's not just an aesthetic thing. I mean, this causes all sorts of secondary effects that are very serious. My dad was a diabetes researcher. And the number of people of metabolic disease linked to obesity is just skyrocketing. It continues to go up. But instead of doing that, they asked us, and I was actually you know, one of the, the assistants on this, so like, this is what we were doing. We'd just be going through all this beetle, just trying to find the most dramatic photos of fat people. You know, that was it. <laughs> we're just trying, it's like, wait, shouldn't we be spending time like, going to find experts and talking to people at top universities who study nutrition and health to figure out what's their answer to this. And it was like, no, it's just more interesting to scare people um, by showing people the most dramatic and disgusting images of like some, you know, weird thing that happened to someone's body. And I was like, huh, that's weird. So, but you know, one of the reasons I trust you though, is I know you personally. <laughs> no, I do. I mean, and, and I know there have been many instances and we can go into some of these where you have absolutely done things that are not in your interest. <laughs> as just a media personality because you thought it was best for the world and best for me and best for the animals. And I, I, I'm grateful to you for that because we could talk about some of those instances. But for most people who don't know a member of the media, like I'm lucky enough that I know you. So when I see something on Jane Unchained, I know this is going to be good stuff that even if you make a mistake, it's going to be a good faith mistake. For the average person out there, they probably don't know you personally, Jane. And even you, even though it seems like you're doing animal rights stuff and it's mission aligned for a vegan or an animal rights supporter, they still don't know you. And, and so like, what advice do you have for people who don't have the benefit that I have of actually knowing some journalists? And even for me, I mean, I know a handful of journalists, but there are a lot more that I don't know, that I read their stuff, and I'm just not sure what's true and what's not. So, I mean, what advice would you give someone who's trying to sort through all this stuff on social media and the media and figure out what's true? Well, we have access to more information at our fingertips on our computers than any hmm. uh, society in human history, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, the Fuller Bushman and this encyclopedia salesman would come by, and my mother actually bought uh, an encyclopedia set, which my father was furious over. Mm. They had a huge fight. <laughs> but that was the way you got information. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I can go in and research anything and double-check anything. Yeah. And um, So it's literally like a set of books that you just go and look exactly. at. Exactly. <laughs> We've got the world's information at our fingertips. I think I remember these encyclopedias of like they're yeah. they're sorted by alphabet, exactly. right? So if you want to learn about yes. dogs, you couldn't Google it. You just yeah. pull out this physical book and yeah, yeah okay. And you know, it would get dated obviously very <laughs> sure. quickly. So we're living in this incredible time where we can do our own research. What do sure. these reporters do? Yeah, sure, they have sources, et cetera, but a lot of times they're just online. Googling, Googling and like so I think Google, Google mm -hmm. it. And that doesn't mean everything you're coming up with on Google is necessarily accurate, but um, obviously I'm not 
a media basher in the sense that there's a grand conspiracy. Sure. The media reflects society. It doesn't necessarily push the envelope. The mm -hmm. New York Times itself goes back and looks at old stories that they did and apologizes for them by critiquing them. Mm -hmm. uh, how they dismiss the suffragettes mm -hmm. uh, and things of that nature. So uh, the news media, uh, my gosh, especially the local news media, uh, does not uh, break new ground very often. I mean, if they do an investigative story, sure, there's investigative news departments that do investigative stories. Sometimes they will break new ground, but generally they reflect society. Sure. I mean, I'll give you an example. When I was in local news and I went vegan um, about a quarter of a century ago, mm -hmm. I wish I had the uh, vegan date the way I have my sobriety date, mm -hmm. uh, which, by the way, is April Fool's Day. Very appropriate. Um, <laughs> Just coming up. Wait, that's like tomorrow, <laughs> Yeah, right? yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. I'll be 27 years sober. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you. But um, uh, when, I, when I went vegan, it was sort of like I put on a new set of glasses or born again or however you want to talk. It changes. The only thing that has to change is everything when you go vegan, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm borrowing a phrase from uh, other major changes that people say, well, you know, once that happens, the only thing that has to change is everything. Yeah. So I started seeing everything with a new set of glasses. So there I am, a local news reporter, and you're supposed to read a rodeo story as a fun kicker. Mm -hmm. Well, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, suddenly I see them laying out glue traps all over the newsroom. Uh, pick them up. Yeah. Oh, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Leave those alone. So all of a sudden I'm starting to have conflicts with people because I'm looking at the world through a new set of glasses. Yeah. Uh, and this is what happens. We are the news media. In other words, the news media is a newsroom composed of individuals. And as those individuals change and as that newsroom becomes more diverse, the determination of what is news and what is not news will change. This mm. is why it's so important to have a diverse newsroom. Yeah, right. If you hate the way the news media is reporting, you know, if you're a young person, go to journalism school, become yeah. a reporter and fight for your causes. Oh, I agree completely. And, and so if you look back, you know, uh, to me, Barbara Walters was the one who opened it up for women and she was discriminated against horribly. She was yeah. treated, uh, they, they, for, for decades, they tried to either keep women out or assign them to, you know, pot pie contests and things like that, um, or fashion. And mm -hmm. if you look at the photos of the earlier newsrooms and the TV newsrooms as well, it's all white men. Yeah. And so women started getting in there. Then people of color started getting in there. Then LGBTQ, and not necessarily in that order, but people's diverse newsrooms. So then if somebody's going to say something or report in a way that's discriminatory, that person then stands up and say, wait a second, what you're doing when you're saying there is not right. Yeah. It's just a microcosm of society. So that's why it's really important. The, the, the decision makers, if you're in these morning meetings, it's just a bunch of people deciding what is news today, what sure. is important, what's not important. Yeah. So uh, that's it, basically. Yeah. And then there's the influence of who's paying the bills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, one example of this is, obviously Black Lives Matter has been ascendant, and there was a great piece by a former Washington Post reporter, I think he's at CBS now, I'm forgetting his last name, but his first name's Wesley. Do you know this guy? It's like a black, young black reporter was at the Washington Post. Well, I don't know this. Yeah, yeah. no, I But mean, he, he wrote a piece that I think it was in the New York Times op-ed about diversity in the newsroom mm -hmm. and how the Black Lives Matter movement for, for years was trying to get in the headlines, you know, because Alicia Garza in Oakland, I think, founded Black Lives Matter back in like the early 2010s. And, you know, after, I think it was after Oscar Grant was shot. 
on an Oakland train station, actually very short distance from where I live. You know, cop pins him on the ground. You know, he's resistant a little bit, but he doesn't have a weapon. He's not a danger to anyone. They've already got him on the ground. I think he's even cuffed. And a cop decides for whatever reason to pull his gun out and shoots him. And oh. shoots him in the bullet, I think, bounces off the ground and then hits him in the, in the side and he bleeds out and dies. Um, and this has been happening to people in Oakland. I mean, there's a long history of the Oakland PD doing awful things and the, and the BART police doing awful things to black people in, in our community. But it didn't really start a movement. And, and journalists, even in Oscar Grant's case, too much emphasized the fact, oh, this guy's resisting. The narrative that was told is very much from the perspective of the police and the people in power and not the people being killed. Unarmed black people are being killed. And part of the reason, I think, in, in George Floyd's case in 2020, in that summer, part of the reason that went viral is because there were so many black journalists who had had similar experiences themselves and knew what that was like. They said, yeah. you know, I've been roughed up for no reason. Like, I've just been walking down the street in New York and someone in a police car comes screaming up next to me, comes out with guns raised and, and says, get down on the ground. It's like, dude, all I'm doing is walking down the street. Right. Why are you pulling your guns right. on me? And again, if you don't have that perspective, then you're just going to listen to the, the, the police who issue a press release because... All of us as a species are inclined to just believe authority. We just accept what the authority figures tell us, whether it's with respect to food, whether it's with respect to policing, whether it's with respect to gender and orientation. And part of what we can do to disrupt that is just get different voices in the media. So I think that's so important. And why it was kind of honestly a bummer when, when you left CNN for me, even though you've done something really cool, because I think we do need more vegan voices, not just people writing about animals, but people who really understand how the world changes when you see it through that vegan lens, through that animal rights lens. One specific thing you mentioned that was really interesting to me was the glue traps. You said you went vegan 25 years ago? Approximately. I 25? think maybe it could be 26 now. It was awesome. really, I could tell you the story because it's very uh, interesting. I, um, to me, maybe yeah. not to anybody else. No, I'm, I'm already but, interested. Um, Howard Lyman who was a fourth is a fourth generation Gosh. cattle rancher turned vegan activist, and he was the guy who, uh, as legend has it, got very ill. He ran a huge cattle operation, and he said, "God, if you get me out of this surgery alive, I'll spill the secrets of our terrible industry." He mm -hmm. survived. He went on Oprah. She famously said, "That just stopped me cold from eating another burger." Yeah. He talked about all the horrors that they inflict on these poor animals and ripping the babies from the mothers and the veal calves and blah blah blah. Uh, I mean, I don't know what he, she. I don't know what he said specifically on that show, but he revealed the secrets. And she was sued by the cattlemen. He became a cause celeb. He became famous. He wrote a book called Mad Cowboy, and I interviewed him. He walked into where I was working. I was a local news anchor at KCAL TV at Paramount Studios in Hollywood. Hmm. I worked there for 12 years uh, in the heart of Hollywood. It was a great job. And uh, he walked in. He, I did the interview with him. And he and his publicist, who is a fierce animal activist named Mar Nealon, walked mm. up to my cubicle afterwards. And uh, by that time, I was a vegetarian. They said, we mm. hear you're a vegetarian. And I said, yes. And they said, do you eat dairy? And mm -hmm. of course, I hung my head because they had just explained all these horrors. And I said, uh, yes. And they <laughs> pointed their finger right at my nose like this and said, liquid meat. Wow. And that was the moment I went vegan. Howard Lyman did this to you? Yeah. As a former cattle rancher? Yeah. Well, Mar. That's hardcore, I think, man. I think Mar was the one with the- Mar with the, was the one for Yeah, you. yeah. No, but, but Howard, Howard is hardcore. And he, honestly, yeah. that comes to the territory of being a yeah. former cattle rancher because he knows how bad yeah. it is. Yeah. But what, when people say don't confront anybody, if they had just said, well, we think maybe you shouldn't have yeah. dairy because of the- blah, blah, I don't think I would have heard it. But sure. when they stuck their finger right at my nose and said, said liquid, liquid meat, meat. Yeah. I went vegan at that moment. Wow. Now- Confrontation is for every, isn't for everybody, sure. but I think that um, it was very clear 
the difference between right and wrong. Yeah. And one of the other things that's influenced me in my life is when a Melanie Joy said, we have to stop apologizing for being right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's stop being those apologetic vegans who show up at a dinner party. Oh, I'm sorry to bother you. Oh, yeah, I don't yeah, want to. Yeah. yeah, we're right. We're yeah. on the right side, side of, of history. history. We are. And we need to own that. Yeah, you're right. And uh, so, yeah, that's my vegan story. I mean, this is one of the reasons we started Direct Action Everywhere. 15 years after that confrontation in your office in Hollywood, because we wanted people to speak their truth. It's, it's not just speaking openly because you're right. It's speaking openly because it's honest. It's what you actually believe. And I just talked to Alexandra Paul yesterday, and Alexandra Paul has talked about for years, she cared deeply about animals. And she even had a brother who went to prison fighting for animal rights, Jonathan Paul. But she always wanted to be nice. You know? She was so afraid and terrified that people would dislike her that she didn't say what she actually thought. And part of her transformation to becoming an animal rights activist and being a Hollywood actor who's on Baywatch and always just hoping people like you, because that's what you do in Hollywood. I mean, your, your brand, your entire business is making people like you toward being an activist where your goal is not to make people like you, it's to speak your truth so that everyone can reckon with the truths that our society has not reckoned with. Um, but how did you develop that moral compass? Because I feel like, I don't want to bash journalists because I think journalists are no better, but also no worse than other people. Um, journalists, like most of us, you know, we, we try to fit in. We, especially when it's not in our interest or something's making us feel uncomfortable personally, we sort of avoid it. We don't <laughs> say, oh, that was great. Thank you for pointing your finger in my face and telling me that I'm a murderer, you know? Um, and, and more broadly, I think most of us, you know, when, especially when on our job, we're thinking about what's good for the business. We're not thinking about what's best for the world, what's best for the animals. We're thinking about what's going to lead to a promotion, what's going to, you know, earn more ratings for my segment. And I'm sure you got to think about those things, dude, and you did think about those things. Yeah, but it also seems I have like for to you, say, I'm no saint. I mean, I chase people down the block yeah. with cameras rolling. I did tawdry celebrity stories. Uh, and in truth, being a crime reporter for many years, which I'm not a crime buff. I have mm-hmm. no interest in crime except to avoid becoming a victim of crime. Sure. Um, but I w- found myself in that genre, hmm. which sometimes people are taken like a river into a genre. You don't know exactly how you got there, but and there you are, it. and yeah. you're given a story, and do this story. Yeah. And I can't say that I'm proud of all of that. Um, you know, Those are tragedies, people's personal tragedies, and... Mm. We're turning them into dramatic stories. I always tell myself, well, there's there's lessons in there about sure. how to avoid being a victim of crime and and psychological lessons. In fact, I wrote a book called Secrets Can Be Murder, sure. which analyzes uh, some of the most famous crimes and what the um, psychological dynamics of those cases tell us about ourselves. Uh, but a lot of that is also rationalization and justification. Mm. Uh, it'd be nice to live in a world where we don't have to make a living covering somebody else's tragedies. Tragedy, sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tough, but I just want to acknowledge that I'm no saint who is doing uh, uh, happy stories all the time. Uh, far from it. Yeah. Far from it. Nobody's a saint. But what I, what I think was different about your reporting, and I saw this even when I didn't realize you're an animal rights activist, was you were genuinely interested in raising up those who are vulnerable and powerless. I think a lot of journalists want to appear to be doing that <laughs> without taking any risks, but there are fewer that actually do it. And I think that was part of your career from day one. And the fact that when Howard Lyman and what was the publicist's name? Mar Nealon. Are you still in touch with yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. I see her all the time. She's cool. hysterical. And, yeah. and, and she's and, still involved in the movement? Oh, she's an amazing activist. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes. But your openness to that sort of critique, which that critique didn't have, 
the change you made going vegan, it didn't have any personal benefit. So oh, it didn't yeah. have any professional benefit. But you're willing to listen to that critique and make some change. You don't have a personal level. And eventually, I mean, it affected your work too. And it's turned you into who you are today. I mean, you're doing almost full-time animal rights activism. So there has to be something different about you in my view. And it, and it could be just inherently you're genetically different. <laughs> I was actually talking to your friend Donnie a couple months ago. Another incredible activist. Amazing dude. Just Amazing. so smart and just one of the best people in the movement. Yeah. He's just so generous and kind. Like every time I go to his house, he's like my Jewish mom. He, he makes <laughs> me all these dinners. He's like, Donnie, I'm, I'm like bothering you. I'm like taking over your house to do podcasts, inviting all these people over and making a mess. <laughs> And, and you still feel like, oh, I need to help you. And it's like, you've got your own activism, your own career. You've got a partner who's sick, and he just always wants to help. He's such a great guy. Yeah, but one of the things is. Donnie said, and this, I disagree with him, is he thinks there are some people who are just born with more empathy than others. And, mm. and it is probably the case that there are just some people who inherently are more sensitive to suffering. And, and I don't think that's the case. Because I look at myself, and I know that there have been times in my life like when I was a kid, I used to drop bugs into spider webs because I thought it was really interesting. Um, and now, like, I love insects. And I know a lot of vegans don't even necessarily think insects are sentient, but I think they're beautiful creatures. Like even mosquitoes, when they're biting me, I like looking at their bellies fill up with blood. Mm -hmm. it's, even though it's my blood, it's like, you know, I got plenty of blood to spend. It's when you look at them, they're so beautiful and intricate. Mm -hmm. And just, but that was something that cultivated and, and that I cultivated myself for years. So I just wonder. In that confrontation 25 years ago, do you feel like this is just something inherent in you that made you receptive to animal suffering? Or was it something you had cultivated or some experience you had gone through that made you more open to that confrontation? Well, I grew up in a household that we thought we were pescatarian or oh, actually we kind of thought we were vegetarian, but we had no idea <laughs> what we were doing. My mom, okay, my mom was from Puerto Rico. My dad was Irish American. Huh. And... Uh, how does My, that end up vegetarian? <laughs> well, interesting. Yes. Well, everybody always cites their history or their heritage as to why they can't go vegan. Sure, and yeah. and if you look at any heritage, you'll find vegan there. I mean, the yeah, potatoes yeah. from potatoes, Ireland, yeah, yeah, cabbage. Huh. Um, is there a history of vegetarianism in Ireland? I've never heard well, that. Well, actually, um, what I'm saying is that... that uh, uh, potatoes are obviously something that is very, very uh, associated with being Irish, right? Sure, yeah. Um, so, um, but but getting back to uh, my background, so my mom was born. Both my parents were born in 1916. My mother was born on Vieques, which is an island off the coast of the mainland of Puerto Rico, but is part of the Commonwealth. And she had a pig that she Aww. thought was her friend and she loved that pig and when she was a little girl she came home from school i guess and the pig had been slaughtered for food oh, she no. fainted and when she she was distraught when she woke up she shunned meat from that point on wow. so she came to new york at the height of the great depression on a boat to join her mother and she formed her own Latin dance troupe, Anita Velez Dancers. I wow. did a documentary on her called Anita Velez Dancing Through Life. That sounds awesome. And she had a very glamorous career. She was the last of the vaudeville. She played the Palace Theater. She had really a spectacular career. And uh, she met my dad, who was an advertising executive straight out of Mad Men. Uh, you know, the pipe, the hat, the suits. I, he didn't even know what a pair of jeans was. Uh -huh. And uh, he was not the adultery and the misogyny. <laughs> uh, hopefully Mad not. Mad Men's a yes. terrifying. If you haven't seen that show, it's like all the men behave so badly. It's awful. <laughs> well, that was the, the fifties were, you know, the, they were 50, the 1950s. So, um, dad was a big, you know, corned beef and cabbage 
huh. eater and stuff, but he converted uh, to wheat again. This was early days. The word vegan wasn't around, uh, but we thought we were kind of vegetarian, but we never had meat in the house, but we ate fish uh, and clams. My parents, neither of them knew how to cook. My Mm. mother was showbiz. She could make spaghetti and clam sauce. That's (laughs) that's it. Spaghetti and clam sauce. (laughs) Paella, I think, was another thing they made. Uh, But we kind of thought we were vegetarian, and they were very avant-garde. My mother was doing yoga in the 40s when nobody knew what yoga was. She was one of the first hyphenates. She kept her name, Anita Velez Mitchell. Mm -hmm. She didn't just take, leave her name. And so she was very avant-garde. She was friends with Ultraviolet, who was with Mm -hmm. Randy Warhol's factory. She... um, had lunch with Salvador Dali. I mean, she was a very uh, cosmopolitan and um, interesting woman who was always exploring and reading and um, growing. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, what I got from my mother is that life's a journey of self-discovery. And she was always exploring and learning new things. I mean, I would wake up in the middle of the night to go get a glass of water, and there she was reading. She would Mm -hmm. read till she fell asleep. And uh, so... Uh, Sounds like an amazing woman. Oh, she's extraordinary. Is she still with us? No, she lived to 99 and a half, though. Wow. And she was sharp up until like two weeks before she died. Wow. And um, so anyway, while we weren't vegan or vegetarian, we were sort of on the journey, and we knew Mm -hmm. that hamburgers didn't fall from hamburger trees. Sure. And so... uh, I actually thought we were pescatarian, and then we were. I was doing a story recently about ducks, and I had this horrifying recollection that I had totally buried that we had gone to a restaurant on the way to uh, the Hamptons mm-hmm. uh, called John Ducks. And uh, I remember as a kid looking at the ducks outside and saying, Dad, are the ducks we ate, are those the ducks? Mm. Because they had the ducks outside. And... So then I realized, oh, we weren't pescatarian. We had eaten the ducks. But that was kind of like a, I don't know if it was a one-off, but it wasn't something that happened very frequently. So anyway, as I grew older, uh, I was leaving with that awareness that even in my high school yearbook, there's references to animal activism. Hmm. I was a leaf litter from day one. In high school, I put out tables against the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also was a libertarian for uh, quite a while. I went through, read all the Ayn Rand books until mm-hmm. uh, I realized that those were kind of cartoonish portrayals of people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they are. But, you know, you have they're that. kind of inter- entertaining stories, but they're very cartoonish. Yeah, it's very entertaining. Yeah, and very I, entertaining. I wouldn't throw everything out. There's elements that are very interesting about sure. individualism and, and yeah, things yeah. of that nature. But um, suffice it to say that uh, I think... Uh, from my mom, I got that I, and my dad, he was always reading as well. Just keep learning, keep growing, keep changing. My dad was a little different. He was, you know, there was no good music after Cole Porter. Um, (laughs) he was very, um, he was a great guy in his own, in his own way. And he was an environmentalist, but I have to say, you know, he, it was a very, uh, I have a very unusual upbringing, uh, because my dad was an arch conservative Republican. When I was a kid, we went to, I'll never forget this because I was drinking Goldwater ginger ale. We went to a a Republican. He did advertising, some advertising for the Nixon campaign. And I only remember this because we had, we drove, he drove, it was a flashy guy. You know, Uh he drove a red Lincoln continental convertible. And he had the bumper sticker, Nixon's the one, on the back of it. <laughs> and I, I asked my dad, why are all these people giving us the finger as we drive around? People would come up to the side and give us the finger. And I was like, oh. and so. 
Did he take it off after Watergate? No. He, he left it on. He oh, was, God. you know, I have to wonder <laughs> how dad would regard all of the stuff going on today. Yeah. But um, how, how did he end up with your mom? Well, my mom, <laughs> they were good dancers, okay? They were both good dancers. My mother okay. was a professional dancer, and she was also really beautiful. Sure. And, you know, she liked to I stop see traffic. Oh, thank you. You're, you're gorgeous. And my I dad, can't believe. I mean, you're, are you over 60? I mean, I'm 66. That's amazing. Yeah. Me. And uh, so, you look which than is me. just a, a, you know, it's a thought process. It you, is a thought you, process. It's a number. I agree. But my dad was quite handsome and debonair. They were, huh. they were, they were like this glamour couple. Okay. And they go, went to a lot of parties. When I was growing up, there were parties in the house. We had uh, Easter parties that were packed where mm-hmm. that was back in the day where people wore Easter hats and you'd see a photograph of the living room. I grew up across the street from Carnegie Hall. Wow. Yeah. Uh, 57th and 7th. It's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, You'd see a sea of hats, uh, cocktail parties. Mm-hmm. We could talk about my journey through uh, alcoholism, uh, uh, which uh, is part of that story. But that was a cocktail party era, huh. right? That uh, a lot of people have written about that. This is cocktail like the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies. Yeah, okay. yeah. Because I was born in fifty five, so okay. we're talking maybe if I'm ten, sixty five. Yeah. And so um, uh, they were a glamour couple, and my dad's best friend, Charlie Conaway was my mother's theatrical agent. Huh. My dad lived on Central Park South, and my mother lived on 58th Street. And okay. my dad's window, back window on 58th Street, faced my mother's window. Aww. And what happened was that um, they had met and maybe gone on one date, and then my mother had a break-in. Wow. And she called my father in a panic because he lived right next, next door, door, and he raced, o- raced over. And the next thing you know, they were going to Havana Madrid dancing, and... Wow. Uh, they were, they were good dancers and Mm -hmm. their whole thing was back in the day, they would have like literally live orchestras and people would go to dinner and then they dance Mm -hmm. and they would always, they love to stop the show. Hmm. You know, they love to stop traffic. They were very, you might call them narcissistic, but in a good way, (laughs) in a good way, they had a lot of fun. They were party animals. And, uh, I always say one of the reasons that I'm an animal activist is they would take me to the parties and throw me in with the fur coats, you know, because back in the day, everybody wore fur coats and they'd throw them in the bedroom and then my parents would go, go sleep there. Yeah. (laughs) So you have a very negative association between all these fur coats. (laughs) Yes, exactly. They were a lot of fun. I wouldn't trade them in for anything in the world. That's awesome. Super cosmopolitan, glamorous. My dad was a high-functioning alcoholic, I will oh, have to say. Wow. Uh, the three martinis the, uh, every night, uh, at least. So that's... You think that's a genetic thing? Yeah, I think, I think you there's... You think it's genetic? I think that alcoholism is multi-determined, hmm. and so it could be genetic. There is a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. alcoholism. It can be um, environmental. Sure. If you see dad having three martinis every night, you think that's normal? That's what he was doing? Well, yeah, you have... Three yeah. drinks every night? Oh, at least, yeah. <laughs> and, at least? Uh, well, you know, I, I didn't count... I don't count. have much of I a wasn't... concept of alcohol because I've never drank in my life, but three drinks every night? I wasn't counting, but seems... yeah, that's what alcoholics do, <laughs> wow. okay? They drink. They, it's that's called cocktail hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's called cocktail concept. hour. Yeah. And <laughs> Yeah, no, but he was a high-functioning alcoholic, so huh. he's an advertising executive. He never drank before work. Okay. I never drank before work. He never drank during work, maybe if he had a fancy luncheon, but sure. he wasn't, you know... He kept it together, okay. okay, as it were, but it still takes a toll. Sure. When when that's 
when that's got you in its grips, that's your number one priority. Yeah. And I don't want to take his inventory. You know, he was a great dad in many ways. I, I, again, I wouldn't trade my parents in for anything. Yeah. I learned a lot from them. And, you know, my dad was very, um, I mean, he gave me a lot of good. What I got from my dad was, you figure it out. Huh. He didn't help me with my homework sure. very much, you know, um, but he inspired me to read a lot of books. I was always reading. He mm. would come in and shut the TV off. He didn't in, like people re- sitting around watching TV. And uh, he, um, we would talk politics mm. every night. He was very political. And we, then we started debating things like the Vietnam War. And sure. that's like millions of households in America. This is a yep. classic story. The, the teenager debating with the... Uh, the parent. Yeah. And uh, uh, actually, I think he sent me off to some young Republicans club and I was there. And then they said, hey, go check out uh, you know, the opposition. I went over there and I said, I like them a lot more. <laughs> and I never came back. That's great. So <laughs> and did your mom and your dad fight over these things? Or did they have a no, good relationship? Because mom- your mom sounds like such, she sounds like she was a leftist. Well, no. She, wasn't she was not a leftist. She, I think like a lot of women in that era, pretty much went along with dad's politics, really? you know, in other words, even yeah, though she you, took her own name, well, but you never know what people, you never know what people States. do in the voting booth. Sure. Right. They go into the voting booth. They yeah, can do whatever true. they want. Very common. I think for women to say they're going along with their husband's political mm-hmm. beliefs and then go in the <laughs> vote. I will say my yeah. mother came out after my father passed away and really got, she, she, I don't want to put my dad down. I mean, he was great in so many ways. Um, and it wasn't like, you know, he never had a car crash. He never, he never had a DUI. I mean, this is pretty typical of Mm -hmm. the fifties and the sixties. So he wasn't out of the ordinary, you know, a lot of guys came home and had three martinis, you know, or whatever, two martinis and a glass of wine or whatever. Um, that was pretty, pretty standard. Hmm. Um, and uh, that's why I said Mad Men, because there's sure. a lot of references to that kind of behavior in Mad Men, mm-hmm. uh, where it's really part of the culture. Yep. Um, and, uh, and a lot, lot of high-functioning alcoholics in that show. Oh, uh, yeah. Like. Well, that yeah, it's, 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 it's actually show. almost it's really the norm. I never really watched it. I watched really? a couple of oh, minutes of it, and show. I was like, oh, this is... This is like, I've been there. I don't need to watch this. John um, Hamm is so good in that show. Really? It's just, I don't know. There's something about him. I mean, he's beautiful, first of all, but it, it, it's he's like a caricature of what we think of in terms of an ad man, but he also feels real. I mean, they do a good job of showing both the face, the front he's putting up and the reality, you know, how it all well, can come yeah. apart and how vulnerable it all is when you actually pick it apart. And that probably was kind of what was happening for your dad too. Yeah. Put well, up a good front, but the alcoholism was actually eating him away on the inside. It's interesting. Uh, I was just thinking about this the other day is the journey. What is the journey? And I think getting back to Andy Warhol's diaries, life is a dichotomy. It, when you sit here and you can say, yeah, I experience low self-esteem, I have anxiety, uh, I feel like a loser, uh, oh, I'm jealous of this person, I'm having revenge thoughts about this, I'm having resentment about this, that's honesty. Mm-hmm. And um, what was so brilliant about him is that he just laid it all out Did in he? very simple words, which most people don't do. Mm. They're, they're generally, we are generally not honest even to ourselves, but much, much less on paper. So this is like right? a book he wrote, a diary? A diary, Andy Warhol's diary. I've never famous. heard of his diaries. Yeah, like uh, it's a big, <laughs> thick book. My mother had it because huh. she was friends with Ultraviolet, and uh, I, I remember she had that in her. Not a writer. He also did diaries, though. He did, he did a diary diaries. every day, and he would okay. say things like, paid $5 at uh, the taxi cab, but then he'd say, uh, whatever, 
he'd say yeah. something just really revealing his intimate thoughts. Sure. And it, it's so telling. Yeah. Uh, and he revealed a lot of insecurities. Huh. But the way I was raised was perform, huh. okay? Yep. Now, my mom, you might call her stage mother to a certain degree. She was a dancer slash actress slash, she was one of the slashes, and she also became a playwright. Um, and, uh, but, but it was, and uh, I don't want to, uh, this is not a critique of them, you know, but uh, it was go out there and perform. It wasn't, what are you really feeling inside? Hmm. What's going on? Those conversations didn't, didn't really happen. happen. Hmm. And it was sort of a snap out of it. Put yourself back on that horse. In fact, somebody once said to me, do you realize you were raised on cliches? And I was like, oh, wow, you're right. You're right. I was raised on cliches. <laughs> Your response was, I, you're right? It wasn't yeah. to push back? It's yeah. like, no, because I'm not my- a cliche. I've got all sorts of real substantive, authentic thoughts. <laughs> no, raised on okay, cliches. Raised on that, that you are yeah. a cliche. But, yeah, no, yeah. I'm not. I mean- uh, in other words, it was sort of like be a personality, don't be sure. a person, yeah. right? And so perform, yeah, and yeah. get your self esteem from uh, what the feedback the you're getting adulation. from the audience. Sure. So if you go through life with that kind of uh, a, a, a dynamic, it's yeah. not authentic. It is gonna, okay. Yeah, so I think for apart. me, it's been uh, a long journey to try to just be authentic and not perform. Sure. And, uh, that's what my parents did. I mean, they could be having an argument and then the door opened to the party. Hi, you know, oh, everything's fine and so wonderful. Yeah. That's that t- duality. Sure. And again, this is so common. There's yeah. nothing uncommon about them. Uh, and, and, and they were great in so many ways. I'm not, sure. don't want to critique them. I would never trade. Everybody loved my parents. I think that's the condition of most human beings. Yes. Most cultures do this to us. They yeah. force us to put yeah. up a face even when we're right. falling apart on the inside. We have right. to put up this face on the outside. Right. So your mom showed you these diaries though. Is that right? Is no, that what no. Me? I mean, I, oh, I was watching the Netflix oh, documentary, okay. but no, but once I, I was watching. I thought you had these diaries when you were a kid and your mom showed you these. I was watching the Netflix documentary just the other day, okay. Andy Warhol Diaries, and I remembered, oh yes, we had that book, the Andy Warhol oh, Diaries. Okay. In fact, you just I wondered had it when you were a kid. Maybe, maybe it's around here somewhere and I couldn't find it. And by the way, I'm in that documentary um, as Jane Mitchell, which is another story, um, because I reported on the Diana Ross, the infamous, famous Diana Ross concert when uh-huh. she's performing in Central Park and it starts raining. And that's part of the documentary. Huh. And I was there. Huh. And actually, I raced to her trailer and interviewed her <laughs> after she had to retreat due to the rains. Uh-huh. Um and uh why is that in the documentary why is that because in Warhol documentary? <laughs> he's he's there and it's like a big moment it's if you were there it was there. like okay. the woodstock it was a woodstock moment sure so it Andy was Warhol a huge and that. i was a yeah. local reporter at kcbs at okay. wcbs and i covered it and uh this is in new york in new york okay, yeah so you've I was been a, re- a reporter in new york and in LA. i was a reporter for eight years at in wcbs okay. and okay. a weekend anchor and at the time i was jane mitchell mm-hmm. now um being Puerto Rican and Irish, it's an interesting combination. And, you know, we all take flack for our ethnicities. There's everybody, uh, I think everybody, it's it's part of the human condition. You know, everybody gets uh, uh, razzed, as it were. And people were always kind of like, well, what's your background? Or you have a really great tan. I was like, no, this is kind of me, you know. And so I was in therapy, actually, because my niece had said, 
you know, you're drinking too much. Huh. Uh, I'm seeing a therapist. Maybe you should see a therapist. And I had this high-powered job as a reporter, and sure. I said, okay, because only your good friends will tell you when you have a problem, by sure. the way. That's true. The, the glad-handers will say, oh, you were, you were okay. You yeah. were fine. It was fun. Nothing happened. But my Even niece- Even with your good friends, it's hard. It's hard. It's not easy it's for them really to do hard. it. It's really hard, yeah. And I'm going through some situations like oh. that right now, and I'm trying to figure them out, which is one of the reasons I'm really excited to have this conversation about oh. alcoholism and how to- you know, yes. tell your friends yes. truths they need to hear. Yeah. So my niece said that. And she wow. said... Uh, this is your niece, too. Yeah, it was my niece. And, was uh, she a lot younger than you? No. Uh, see, I have a half-sister who was okay. actually married when I was born. Uh, my mother's other daughter, okay. who's a... Lives right near here. Okay, and so your niece really is almost like a peer. She's almost like a peer. She's kind of like okay. a sister, yeah. a younger sister. And she okay. and her boyfriend said, yeah, every time I see you, you're drunk. And hmm. so uh, she said, you know, she was very gentle about it. She said, you know, maybe I'm seeing a therapist. Maybe you should see a therapist. Yeah. And I said, uh, I hope she doesn't mind that I say that, but I don't think she does. Uh, anyway, so I started going to the therapist. And uh, let me tell you one thing. You can talk your way forever. That's not going to get you sober. Okay. Yeah, I spent uh, several years, seven years talking about how I was working on it. Mm. Right. And that's not, it, that's not the answer. You can do it. So what do you mean by that? So when you get going to therapy? sober, yeah. what? What you do you mean get, by you can talk your way and it's not going to get you anywhere? You mean well, you're just going to therapy and talking yeah, about how you're going to get as, sober? As Greta Thunberg says about the environmental crisis, sure. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, d- let's just say this. There are programs at work for helping people with alcoholism sure, and they're all over the place and take one, go to a program sure. and then you could do therapy along with it. Sure. And, but anyway, I was in therapy and I was talking about my, uh, interesting ethnic background. And I was saying that, you know, sometimes I felt, I didn't feel the name Jane Mitchell was authentic hmm. and I felt like, uh, it didn't really explain who I was. And I was saying my mother was a hyphen and she was Anita Velez Mitchell and the therapist said, well, why don't you, why don't you take your mother's name and say you're Jane Velez Mitchell? I said, great idea. Now I didn't do that until my father passed away. My father was extremely old school. Sure. Okay. 1916. Mm -hmm. Okay. Conservative. Very Goldwater conservative. Yeah. Conservative. (laughs) He wouldn't have gone for it. Okay. And I never spoke back to my father. Once huh. in my life, I spoke wow. back to him. And uh, that Wait, was what not was that? even... I said, maybe I need a breath of fresh air. And we had an argument. That, that counts as <laughs> speaking back <laughs> to your father? Yeah. That's just taking yeah. some space for yourself. James. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. No, he was a great guy. He just it was a different a different, a different ter- generation. You don't talk. Yeah. I mean, I see pe- kids talking to their parents today. today I'm like, like, "Oh my god." I mean, pe- kids don't just talk back to their parents today. They kick and throw things at them. <laughs> like oh like I know this. I got two nieces and I, again, I love my nieces. They're amazing. Yeah. But they will do anything to their parents. Well, hopefully there's a middle ground somewhere. There's got to be. Yeah. That we're between not we're not talking back at all. For sure. Our area where we could disagree was in politics hmm. we would sit every okay. evening and have our political discussion my dad read the new york times from cover to cover hmm. he did the crossword puzzle in ink hmm. so he was a an educated person sure even though he didn't graduate college wow. he attended columbia but he never graduated okay um and he How also did he get in the ad business if he didn't graduate from college especially back he, then. he had his own agency newmark posner and mitchell thing. on madison avenue an entire wow. floor on madison avenue that's amazing yeah. yeah. So it was a very it still exists, I think. NPM. Cool. Uh, it was a very successful advertising agency. I worked yeah. the switchboard one summer. Huh. I was very hungover during most of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> God. 
I I remember I woke up in the middle of the night once because when you back in where they had switchboards and I would go Newmark Poser and Mitchell, hold on please. And I woke up in the middle of the night sitting up in bed saying Newmark Poser and Mitchell, hold on please. Newmark Poser and Mitchell, <laughs> hold funny. on please. Um, so uh, I don't even know what we were talking about. I don't know. Uh, either. Yeah. Uh, but, what were we talking about? Well, I want to ask you more about the alcohols, okay, for sure, because sure. you've mentioned this a few times. Yeah. So how did it start? Did I mean, was well, drinking something you did when you were growing up, like yes. as a teenager? So your parents well, introduced it, you to it? Did started, they let you drink? It started at those cocktail parties. Okay. And they would have cocktail parties with like 100 people, and they would have uh, people would leave their drinks with the little flutes, and I would just go around the, I would go around the party and just drink down What's little a flutes. It's a, when you have like a, a champagne tube? glass, there's oh, a flute. Okay. And so I would drink those, the flutes. So uh-huh. I was off to the races at and a very- were your very, parents okay with this or were you doing this sneakily and, you know, they didn't I don't they think they you? were actually paying attention. They were paying attention. Yeah. Okay. They were having a big party. And, Why'd you uh, want to drink this stuff? Just because you saw the adults doing it and you thought, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you have to be careful with kids. I think, you know, there's this sort of, some people think of myth, oh, a little- Glass of wine? No. My opinion, no. Don't give it to the kids. Don't give kids alcohol. And if they try to get it, don't give it to them. them. It doesn't take much to Mm. get you started. And uh, if you have a genetic predisposition, for example, sure, then you're you're just on the road already. And then as a teenager, uh, uh, I. Uh, was very political because that's all we ever talked about in the house. Mm-hmm. And I was always leafleting animal. I have animal rights things. I forget hmm. what the heck I was lef- yeah. leafleting about. Various things. Yeah. Uh, we held protests. I was interviewed once. That's one of the reasons I became a reporter Jeez. is that wow. I was interviewed uh, at a protest that we held. Hmm. And, and this I, is an animal advocacy protest? No, it wasn't. A it was protest. some kind of protest. I don't even remember, to be okay. honest with you. I was a teenager. Huh. Um, but um, Was it just you, or did you have a sibling oh, that no, would company with you? Or no, I, I had... Okay, so I was an only child, okay. and uh, my parents didn't know from play dates. Let's get to the trauma, okay? okay? I had a dog. Uh, my mother had a lot of showbiz friends. Huh. I don't know if you know the, the movie Broadway Danny Rose. I don't. But it's pretty much shot like almost in the neighborhood where I grew up, hmm. like the Carnegie Deli, uh, all of these show business has a lot of characters. They're, they're characters who have like one claim to fame or, you know, I beat Fats Domino in a pool. Yeah, I just, they're characters. And we had a lot of these characters floating around. Hmm. And uh, one of these characters, a guy named Cosmo, uh, brought in a dog and he found the dog, I don't know, somewhere at a bar. Uh, and, uh, he found the dog at a bar, <laughs> like in the back of a okay, back of like a bar or something. Behind, just and that was Mr. Monday. That was the love of my life when Aww. I was a little kid and I had Mr. Monday. And what kind of dog was he? How old were you? He was a little mutt. And just, he you was, don't know. Okay. Yeah. And, and this we is had a little kid or a teenager? Yeah. I was probably maybe seven mm-hmm. and I just love Mr. Monday so much. And one day I came home from school and Mr. Monday was gone. Oh, no. Yeah. We were moving to a fancier apartment. We were moving from 58th Street to 57th Street, mm-hmm. and um, we were going to get wall-to-wall carpeting. This is what I found out later. And my dad said Mr. Monday had to go. And Oh, my God. Yeah. And so when Mr. Monday left, I literally... Everything changed for me. I wow. feel like my my brother was abducted, and I'll never know what happened to him. And it changed my relationship with my parents. Ter- you know, 
I, I didn't really trust them after that. I don't really blame my mother. Sure. She, you know, again, this was the era where whatever dad said went, you know, and um, it was hard to argue back. And I just, I never, I'll never, I was in shock. Yeah. Um, and um, it was hard to articulate as a child. You know, I kept saying, where's Mr. Monday? And they said something about, oh, Cosmo met a man on a train, uh, went to a farm. And, you know, even as a child, I was like, what? Yeah, it didn't make any and sense. And it didn't make any sense. And I still wonder, whatever happened to Mr. Monday? And, um, you know, they didn't really do proper, like, Mr. Monday had accidents because we didn't wake up at 7 o'clock and roll out of the house and walk him. Sure. We didn't get him spayed. We didn't yeah. go to the vet. I mean, I look back so and Mr. I go. Mr. Monday was a girl? Oh, spade, neutered. You mean that? Oh, neutered. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Neutered. <laughs> I thought you named Uh-oh. a girl. Mr. What kind Monday? of an animal like, activist <laughs> am I? That's no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I always just use the term spade. Sure. Yeah, gender no, it's neutral. Okay. It's gender all good. neutral yeah. term. Yeah. I just thought I thought she might be a girl, no, and no. I was like, oh, that's even better. She's... Mr. Monday was a girl. <laughs> <laughs> he was way ahead of his time. Yeah, way ahead of his time. Yeah, but but um, so when we moved into the fancier apartment on Fifty Seventh, which was quite a fancy apartment. Yeah. I'll never forget this. First thing I did was knock over a lamp and burn that wall-to-wall carpeting. Wow. I burned a big hole in it. Seriously? Yeah. And That's then, intense. Yeah. And you could have burned down the apartment, Jane. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a big hole. And it was hole because you were mad about Mr. Monday. No, it was totally unconscious. I didn't. Oh, wow. I, mean, I did all the math sure. unconsciously. Yeah. About why this was happening. Yeah, because you're upset about the carpet. They and thought the, the dog is going to yeah. stain the carpet yeah. and mess up the carpet. Yeah. And then I ran into wow. my room and I started crying. My father came in and said, why are you crying? Yeah. You know. He just didn't get it. You know, yeah. he didn't understand what he had done. Because you couldn't talk about feelings in your family. Exactly. It's so hard. Yeah, it's hard. But, uh, you know, we were very theatrical, and there was a lot of, like, I remember once I was visiting, and I woke up, and I was like, give me the gun! Yeah. What? And I was like, oh! And I was like, oh, they're rehearsing exactly. a play. Yeah. They're rehearsing a play, and they're yeah. up there in the front room rehearsing yeah. a play. And so there was a lot of theatricality. Sure. But there wasn't, and my mother was, you know, she, as she really grew after... Um, dad passed away uh-huh. and she I think she were they was together always, their entire lives no my mother was married like four times this okay. was her fourth marriage uh, oh, wow. but uh, my dad was only married once okay. and, uh, to your mom obviously yeah, yeah. and uh, so uh, no they were together a long time okay. very long time they never got divorced okay. uh, but uh, I think my mother was learning about feelings and talking about feelings but I think the household structure when I was mm-hmm. growing up was was not about that. Yeah. I, I do remember my dad saying, you know, when I'd have like little crises or whatever, boo hoo hoo. Mm-hmm. Or he had another phrase, um, yeah, that triple murderer wasn't allowed to go to double features. That's why he committed the crime. What it, you know, that kind of, that, but that's a mentality. Yeah. Now, I will say, I want to say something, dad's defense. Yeah. Boy, he did give me uh uh, the ability to handle situations. Sure. His whole thing was like, you get knocked down, you stand up, you up. brush yourself off, and you just keep moving forward. Yeah. And no self-pity. Sure. Zero self-pity. That is something that was not tolerated yeah. in our house at all. And uh, I see how people, you know, when their kids fall down or whatever, oh, yeah. it's, it's a different mentality, yeah. right? Uh, so the whole mentality was, if you get knocked off your horse, you get back on your horse and ride again. Now, obviously, that's a bad metaphor for a person. I'm, sure. I'm quoting Same him. And yeah. he was a good rider. He was a polo. He played polo during World War II in mm-hmm. Africa. He was like the captain of a polo team. Mm-hmm. And we grew up riding. I went to Claremont Stables and I rode uh, horses, which was 
I look back and go, oh my God. Mm -hmm. Again, these horses come out of the basement of a mm -hmm. building and there's, a, there's an entire circle where you do classes and mm -hmm. ride horses inside a building in the basement. Wow. Yeah, so I did have one argue with my dad once where we had a horse in our, we had a summer house and uh, I know we had a horse that was off site at some horse place. And when we came back from the winter to the summer and we came to see the horse, the guy said the horse died hmm. of chewing wood. Oh. And uh, chewing wood? Shooting, that's, listen, I'm a kid. This is happening, I don't know, 60, 70, I'm going to have it 60, 50 years ago, whatever. Sure. But um, I remember that chewing wood. Remember huh. that. And then uh, dad said he was going riding anyway on another horse. And I did say, dad, how could you? Yeah. Wow. But see, there's a different mentality sure. there. Yeah. I also remember we went to Spain uh, when I was a tween, maybe I think I might've been 12 and we were on vacation. Vacation. We we went to Spain, and th there was a thought talk of going to bullfight. And at mm. that point, I said no. We are no. not. Wow. And I, and they didn't go. Interesting. So because you said no, I said no. Yeah. Uh, now I didn't know really. All I knew was I'm not going into a bullfight. Yeah. So I think that it's a combination. You you know this. Uh, here's what you would ask: Was why do certain people become animal activists? That's why right. do certain people... Story. So obviously... Where do you develop your moral compass? It's yeah. multi-determined. The trauma of Mr. Monday. Mm -hmm. The influence of my mother, knowing that animals are sentient beings and mm -hmm. we don't eat them, even though we did eat some, yeah. but yeah. we were on the journey. And then my political activism garnered through my conversations with my dad, always mm -hmm. talking politics, debating, mm -hmm. Uh and uh, so those common, it's a combination. You stir that up, and then you've got somebody who's very likely to become an animal activist. Sure, yeah. One of the things about that story that I think is important, I mean, we should care about Mr. Monday and other animals, first and foremost because of themselves. But when we're cruel to animals and we take them away from their families or hurt them in some way, it also hurts the people they love uh, and the people who love them. And this sounds like a genuinely traumatic experience. And I've heard so many stories, like I was in jail in Sonoma County with somebody who was in jail as well. And I'd gone through all, the, all sorts of awful experiences, including being in jail. You know, he was in jail, I think for something pretty relatively dumb, like a nonviolent crime. Like I think he was like a, a deadbeat dad who wasn't paying child support and they eventually jailed him for contempt because he wasn't paying his, his child support. Partly because apparently, I think he didn't have the money to pay it. He was just not doing well financially, but he'd worked all these awful jobs, like janitorial jobs, hard labor and construction. He'd been in jail. And I said, yeah, this must be a really awful experience for you. I'm sorry you're going through this. And he said, oh, this is nothing compared to the last job I had. So I'm actually happier here than I was last. And guess where he was last? Slaughterhouse. Slaughterhouse. He worked at Penelope Poultry, the exact slaughterhouse that we had actually just been arrested for doing a mass occupation oh, at. Wow. So he had been at the slaughterhouse and he didn't even know, I think at this point, he knew I was an animal person, and, and I think that's one of the reasons he brought up the slaughterhouse. He had no idea that I had been arrested at Penelope Poultry, which is the largest organic poultry po operation in the world. And he said, you know, there are a lot of things awful about it. It's so fast. There's so much blood and knives and people get cut up. They, you know, like limbs get torn off, fingers get cut. But one of the awful things was just how much you become desensitized to violence and just what it did to him, right? And he's going back to his kids and going to his family every day, just... You know, I think he was like, he wasn't even a person actually killing the birds. Yeah. So there's a lot of that is actually mechanized. Yes. There's an electric water bath that dips the bird's head, 
supposedly stuns them, but you know, there's a failure rate of maybe five to ten percent. So five to ten percent of these birds are going to the slaughter line still oh. conscious. I think he was like taking one organ out, which is it's such a weird thing to think about. But this is a guy who eight hours a day was just ripping an organ out of an animal's body over and over again, the same organ. And there's something deeply cruel about forcing someone to do that. Of course. There's something deeply cruel that's dehumanizing them. Just I mean, because you're it's not normal behavior to just see a living creature and say, I'm going to rip your organ out. You know, this is something like from Indiana Jones when that horrible priest, have you seen that movie? I think it's Temple of Doom. Yeah. When he grabs the guy's oh, heart yeah. out. That's like the, the most evil thing you can imagine. I was like, oh, oh, and this guy was doing that shit every single day of his life to thousands of animals, just ripping their organs out, ripping their organs out. Well, and, you know, we should do a documentary just talking to these people and talking to them about the horrific impact yeah. because so many people say, well, oh, you're, I love your passion for animals. Yeah. I care about people. I mean, how many times have you gotten that? Uh, right? More times than I can So count. what are you doing to people? Yeah, absolutely. Hello? You're hiring people to be mass murderers. Yeah, you are. And you're forcing them to do this for economic reasons and traumatizing them in unbelievable... Absolutely. I mean, the trauma, and it's statistically documented. Yeah. And then they experience alcoholism and all sorts of other things. You know, uh, there's plenty of things. Depression. Mm-hmm. It, it's just infuriating to me how people can say, well, I care about people. Well, if you care about people, forcing somebody to rip out a heart uh, several thousand times a day... Yeah. yeah. Okay, I wish we could interview that guy and yeah. do a whole documentary about one person who was forced to work in a slaughterhouse or a pro- series of profiles on people. Like that to me is fascinating. We have to stop just doing what what makes us feel good and figure out strategically what is going to get through to these people. Yeah. What is going to get through to people? And I use the example because I have an advertising background, not me personally, but Actually, I know a lot of people in advertising. It's a big part of our economy, advertising. Um, The ad, the one ad that I think is credited with doing more to get people off cigarettes is Mm -hmm. that famous one photo of Mm -hmm. a woman who has had an operation where she needs a Mm -hmm. hole in her throat because of her smoking. Yeah. And she's smoking a cigarette through the hole in her throat, right? And the, the caption is, smoking is very glamorous. Wow. I think I remember it accurately. Yeah. It could be a little different. I think different. I've seen this image. That. And it, and it does leave a mark in your mind. That. In your soul. Right. Exactly. Because <laughs> it's deep. It's saying smoking isn't very glamorous. Yeah. This is what we need to do is we need to have that one image. Mm-hmm. Maybe the, the thing is somebody taking, ripping out an animal's oh, heart and say, I'm not vegan because I care about people. Yeah. Uh, or I care about people, not animals. Well, what are you doing to these people? Yeah. You're torturing these people just as much as you're, well, simultaneously to torturing animals. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not just as much. It's hard to compare death to something else, but it's torture of people. Yeah. It Absolutely is. torture of people. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like when you see that movie, Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. which I'm not even the biggest fan of Indiana Jones, but that scene, I mean, that is one of the most memorable scenes in the history of cinema to me. And I've, I've watched a lot of movies since then. And it's just so grim and it's so evil. And the, the idea that we're compelling people, forcing people to do that over and over again. I mean, taking someone's heart out, that is just even metaphorically, it's such a gruesome, disturbing task 
to make just an intrinsic part of our economy and our food system. And, and we don't have to. And one of the most really interesting things about that conversation, I wish, you know, one of the bad things about jails, they don't really give you much stuff. And one of the mm -hmm. things they don't give you is stuff to write on or stuff to write with. So wow. I had this like crappy little knob of a pencil that I found. Wow. And I had like my jail intake form that listed all the things they'd taken from me. Yeah. And I was writing all the, I was taking all these notes on it and, and I wrote his name on this jail intake form. And then I think I didn't get it back from them when, oh. I, when I submitted it to get yeah. my stuff back out of jail. So his first name's Gabriel. And I forget his last name. And I was trying to look him up. In the, in the system in Sonoma County, but there's so many Gabriels. There's so many people we put in prisons. You, you I couldn't know, find them. I can help you find people. Uh, I was working with uh, Unchained TV, which yeah. is, we're, we're leaving the name Jane Unchained behind. It's technically the name of our nonprofit, huh. Jane Unchained News Network. But it was, I thought about it. It, it, it came up on the fly. It was fun while it lasted, but now sure. we're getting more serious and, and we're larger. Unchained TV is our brand. And um, I've, been working with an organization called Boycott Meat, yeah. and it's based in Iowa, and they have gone vegan in solidarity with the slaughterhouse workers dying yeah, of COVID. That's awesome. And yeah, I they, think I know these folks because yeah, they, they supported Enrique's us in Henry. Iowa in the VSD trial when my yeah. friend Matt was going to trial. Yeah, mm -hmm. they can provide numerous slaughterhouse okay. workers. I that's think awesome. this would be a fascinating project just yeah, to talk you, to these people about I, their I trauma. Right. And I, I wish I could find Gabriel specifically because it was such a powerful experience. Like he teared up at some point because he was talking about his problems and, and then I shared with him because the, the, the worst, not the worst part about it, obviously the worst part is just what's happening to the animal and what you're inflicting on this human being who has to engage in this horrible violence. And not to say they don't bear some responsibility too. I think, you know, responsibility can be shared. I do think it's the executives and the people who are making a killing off this, like in a metaphorical killing for actual killing who are most responsible, but the workers share with some responsibility, the consumers share responsibility. Our entire society shares some responsibility for this violence. But the, the thing that I think um, at least moved me most about that conversation, I think moved Gabriel the most about the conversation was, was not just us talking about what that did to him and just when he came home, I mean, if you've been ripping hearts out of animals, I don't even remember what organ was, might've been a liver, kidney, I don't know. And you come home and you see your kid's heart. It's like you've seen so much bloodshed and violence. You're so accustomed to shrieks and cries of animals who are desperately trying to escape. When your kid scrapes their knee, you're just not going to be as sensitive to that. You know? As and long as there are slaughterhouses, there will be, be battlefields. That's Leo's Tolstoy. Yeah. yeah. But what, what I tried to share with them, the first animal I opened rescued um, was a chicken. So from a, actually from a punk show in Chicago. And I think... He had never had that relationship with a chicken. And I tried to tell him what my relationship was like Philip and Marta. Like Philip and Marta were these two chickens. Totally defied all expectations of a female and a male chicken. Because, you know, the male chickens, the roosters, are usually like prima donnas who go out there and like are aggressive and peck everyone. And they, you know, they're supposed to be guarding the flock and they fight each other. Philip was a complete baby. <laughs> like he just like, he deferred to Marta and everything. He just like followed me around and tripped like a little baby. And when the fruit came out, Marta, on the other hand, would like rush forward and steal the fruit. And Philip was like, ah, I have to run to the back and let Marty eat first. And it was like such a baby. And Marta was the aggressive one, just, just like us. I mean, every individual is different. And just because you're a woman or a man or you're black or you're white or Chinese doesn't mean you can't defy the stereotypes. In fact, we're all unique individuals and there's much more variation within a group, oftentimes in between groups. And I think the same is true of animals too. And I was trying to explain to him, not just like, the appreciation I had for the uniqueness of these two individual chickens and anybody's got dogs. I mean, you've got, 
like three dogs that to me they all look kind of similar. <laughs> I, I'm now sorry, you have two, two dogs now. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry no, you okay. lost one of your dog. Oh, thank you. But like when you walk in, you see three Chihuahua type dogs. It's like, oh, they're all Chihuahuas, yeah. and I can't really tell the difference. I don't even know the names. They're just Chihuahuas. I'm just there's a category in my head. But you, you, I mean, you were telling me about I'm forgetting uh, Foxy. Foxy, like the very distinct personality, and and Foxy has that even though she's an old lady, she's like the queen of the party. She's always like following you around and wants to party with you. She's like, how old is she? 14? She's at least 14, 14 and she's a party girl. Yeah. So you've got this beautiful aged chihuahua who's yes. got the personality of like a, a, a teenager. teenager. Yeah. Who just wants to party. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm sure the same was true of Mr. Monday. Mr. Monday was not just a dog to you. Oh, Mr. Man. Monday was a unique individual light you know oh, that she had yeah. or he had a light and a life that was so yeah. beautiful and perfect and yeah. and special for you and that was ripped away from you yeah and i think the thing that makes me so upset about slaughterhouses isn't just the cruelty that's inflicted but the loss of potential relationship because every one of those chickens like gabriel could have had a relationship with every one of those chickens <sighs> if we cultivated that in our society in our food system in our education the way we raise our kids if we didn't tear dogs away from kids and recognize these dogs have, it's not just they have immense value. They have this unique intrinsic value that you were able to see. And that's a beautiful thing in you and a beautiful thing in Mr. Monday. And, and that's something our entire society should be cultivating, not destroying. Yeah, with slaughterhouses, with parents who, by no fault of their own, because, you know, my parents did the same thing to me. Like, oh. we raised a dog outside. You know, they weren't allowed in the house. We used a pinch collar. And one time, my dad pulled the pinch collar so hard and embedded in the dog's neck Ooh. and had to be surgically removed because we hit the dog. Oh my I God. hit my dog when I was oh a kid because I was taught yeah. this is what you do. Like yeah. if the dog comes inside, you have to smack him in the face. Yeah. And this dog lived in fear. Yeah. You know, she lived in fear. And it doesn't have to be that relationship, you know? Life doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. And it this doesn't. is why veganism is the most, in my opinion, it's the transformational social justice movement for the human race. Mm -hmm is that it says, for me to live, you don't have to die. Yeah. For me to win, you don't have to lose. Life is not a zero-sum game. Yeah, you're right. And that is evolution. Mm -hmm. and, and is the human race going to make that evolutionary leap? Or we will die. We will yeah. all die. And, of course, Unchained TV, we did a documentary on Dr. Silas Rao mm. called Countdown to Year Zero. He's great. We, he's amazing. We mm -hmm. have about... Well, less than a decade to transition to a plant-based culture. Yeah. And the reason I say plant-based culture, because some people go, wait, uh, we have six years to all go vegan. It's not like there's going to be vegan police driving mm. up, checking your belt to see if it's a synthetic belt or a leather belt. But that it's, would be so fun, James. That would be so fun. <laughs> we could drive around together, put on police gas and say, hey, is that a leather belt? We're going to cuff you. You're going to jail? No, no. We're kidding, obviously. Yeah. We're not going to do that. Right. But it's a cultural change where plant-based, you go into sure. a restaurant, plant-based is the it's norm. The, the meat is sure. the outlier. Yeah. And uh, of course, cell-based meat is going to, I believe, I'm, mm -hmm. I know it's, it's controversial a little bit in the vegan community, but I'm sorry, whatever, as Gene Bauer says, whatever is going to reduce the most suffering sure. and Cell-based meat is absolutely going to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to explode on the scene and it's going to be the game changer. In fact, Klaus Mitchell of Plant-Based News said, he said something in one of his talks that I thought was brilliant. He said, I know why veganism is going to win. And that is that once cell-based meat starts getting manufactured on scale mm -hmm. in the ginormous vats, it is going to be cheaper even than the heavily subsidized meat and dairy from mm -hmm. cows. 
and pigs hmm. and chickens. So that gave me hope. Hmm. And we're on the cusp. We just got to keep this planet alive till we make that switch. switch yeah. um, it's so close. And uh, it's very hard to see change in real time. Yeah. And uh, I have a... a a magnet on my refrigerator, Nelson Mandela. It oh. always seems impossible until it's Doesn't done. Until it so yeah. I always stay out of the results, do the next indicated thing. Just stay out of the results. Just do the next, do the next, do the next. Don't worry about the results. Yeah. Or as my dad would say, never look where the golf ball's going when you're hitting it. Yeah. You look down at the club, right? Mm -hmm. Just focus on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I say that because my dad was a great guy. I yeah. don't want to sound like he was some, he was charming. Everybody loved him. I will say all my friends love my parents. Mm -hmm. They were like the most interesting parents. Sir, they sound interesting. <laughs> they were interesting. They were glamorous. Mm -hmm. They were fun. And so they I had don't. 100 person cocktail parties. That sounds fun. Yeah. I don't even drink oh my it. God. They fun. were, they were <laughs> so much fun. So please don't think I'm, again, I'm no victim. Sure. All right. I yeah. got a lot of great things from my dad. Uh, you know, I be I was I, I, if I have to say I'm resourceful because of the way I was trained. Yeah. Good. And he said, you know, you figure it out. Uh, yeah. You're responsible for your life. You, um, I'm not going to coddle you. And mm -hmm. and those were great things. He didn't say it in a mean way. Those were sort of like the the ground rules. Yeah. And so uh, I feel that gave me a lot of strength. That's actually, awesome. uh, I wasn't uh, coddled, and uh, that. Uh, really made me uh, autonomous, and uh, I can go out there and you know I was a virtual teenager when I got my first job in Fort Myers, Florida, mm -hmm. and uh, I survived. Yeah, you know, um, and you know, there's an enormous amount of science behind that that perspective too. Have you heard of systematic desensitization therapy? No, I haven't. Exposure therapy <laughs> no. is the more modern version. So back in the 1950s, I'm actually writing a book and I'm writing a oh. chapter about exposure therapy right now because oh, it's wow. really important for the world to Where hear do you get in this time? moment. I don't have the time, <laughs> but I'm, I'm doing it anyways. <laughs> but there was a psychiatrist named Joseph Wolpe in mm -hmm. South Africa who was yeah. dealing with a lot of patients of PTSD mm -hmm. from World War II. This is like in the early 1950s, like 1940s. And the conventional wisdom at the time, because if you ever interact with someone with PTSD, I've got a friend who has PTSD um, and it depends on what your trigger is, but... Her trigger in particular is loud noises. And when she hears a loud noise like an ambulance, she literally collapses on the ground is holding herself and wow. just walking back and forth. And the same is true of a lot of people, especially veterans who've been through serious war scenes. So you have an explosion and you look next to you and your comrade in arms is literally blown into a thousand pieces and you can see like their organs. Yeah. There. And, and just it leaves you with this trauma. Like right. You can't get out of it. And it's amplified by nightmares and night terrors. And it destroys your life. Like you can't go out and you hear a honking horn. You're on the ground thinking this is World War II all over again. And the thought at the time when Joseph Wolpe started treating these patients, this is what he was trained to do, was because, and it makes sense, because these stimuli are so traumatic, our goal should be to insulate people from these stimuli. Make sure they don't hear anything negative and hope that in time they'll get better. If we just make sure somebody's triggered by loud noises, for example, because a bomb exploded next to them and their entire, all their friends died. Mm -hmm. uh, we should just make sure they never hear any loud noises. And over time, let them heal, let them restore. And that turns to be the opposite of what actually works. And what mm -hmm. Joseph Wolpe showed, and he did this, unfortunately, with animals first. Oh. He was experimenting on cats. Like, how do you make oh, like, scared God. cats become less scared? Is what he called systematic desensitization, which is to say, if you want to get someone to overcome trauma related to a loud noise, you actually have to give them soft noises, then a little louder noises, then louder and louder noises, and eventually get to a loud noise. And if you show them that this thing that they think is dangerous that actually isn't. Because what happens with trauma is you start associating a stimuli 
with a very bad experience, even when that stimuli isn't always going to cause a bad experience, like a noise. You know, there are lots of loud noises out there that are not bombs. And so you have to train the person's mind to understand the association they've made between bomb and noise is not accurate. That you have to show them that, you know, someone could talk very loudly. That's not scary. A dog can bark. That's not scary. An ambulance can go by. That's not scary. And you can't do it all at once. You can't just like come with an explosion that's as loud as a bomb going off and expect the person to be able to handle that. But you systematically desensitize someone. And I think one of the problems I'm seeing with America today, not just with respect to trauma, but with any sort of negative experience you're feeling, conflict, political disagreement, you know, um, images in the media, we're being taught that anything that's uncomfortable is something we have to run away from instead of something we should go towards. Mm-hmm. And even in the animal advocacy movement, one of the reasons I started DXC was because I thought it was so important for us as advocates especially, but frankly for everyone, to go toward these evil, atrocious things instead of, you know, covering our eyes and saying, I don't want to see this or, or, or running away from it or passing ag-gag laws, even worse, that criminalize exposing these places. Let's go towards it. Let's be open about it. Let's, let's be like Andy Warhol with respect to his own trauma and his own insecurities, with respect to all the insecurities and all the traumas of our world. And I'm not saying we have to do it all at once. And I don't think anyone thinks it's possible even for us to address all the problems in our society and all the suffering of animals in one fell swoop. We'd love to do it. But let's at least start going towards it rather than running away from it. And if we do, we can start coming up with solutions. That's my theory. I think it's a great theory. What we try to do at Unchained TV is show people a little glimpse Mm. of it and then get out of it before they can. Yes, great. Yes, and it's a it's a streaming network that you can download on your phone, Unchained Mm -hmm. TV, absolutely free. You can also download it on your Roku device, on your Amazon Fire Stick, on your Apple TV device, or if you have a Samsung or LG Smart TV, those newer Smart TVs, you just put in Unchained TV, one word, pops right up. And you saw one of the videos we did. Beautiful, beautiful and elegant. You you go from something that's eye candy and fun, and then you show uh, the horror, but Mm -hmm. only for a couple of seconds, so it gets in the brain, but before somebody can have that reaction, oh, no, I don't want to see this, boom, you're gone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a strategy that's effective. Mm-hmm. Once people see these images, what's the old cliche, yeah, a picture's worth a thousand yeah. words, they can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. And so this is why I think it's so important for people to use social media uh, to go live at visuals, at protests, uh, and why we started this global streaming network, uh, which is absolutely free, Unchained TV, is to get the images out to people who are not exposed to this. So people say, well, you know, there's YouTube. Well, but a lot of times people on YouTube are looking for those videos. We want to get people who aren't really looking for it, who are stumbling, looking for free content. Boom, Mm -hmm. they click on it. Once they see it, they go, oh my God, they can't get it out of their heads. It's going to be there. And so if you are in denial, what's a great way to get out of denial? Have somebody show you the truth, truth then sure. you can't necessarily, you were talking about journalism, truth and lies. Yeah. Now, one of the most effective things about DXC is that every time there's an undercover investigation, they say, well, you know, they took that, that out of context. Well, first of all, how do you take a cow, for example, hanging on a hip clamp, being moved by a tractor trailer out of context? There's yeah. no context. Steven Spielberg even, couldn't yeah. stage something so horrific and dramatic yeah. with a hundred stagehands. So it's, crap and nonsense just on its face. For sure. However, you documenting everything and saying, here, here's the entire thing, beginning to end, mm-hmm. 360. Yeah. Check it out. You tell me if we took it out of context. Um, is so powerful uh, because 
it there's a I see. Okay, you talked about your theory about getting people to um, be able to recognize the horrible truths. I have a an addiction parallel to the the vegan and meat thing. Hmm. So I believe, just as I am a recovering alcoholic, uh, and it's a daily reprieve. Uh, at the old saying, "Once a pickle, never again a cucumber." There's hmm. no cure. You just can't go back. Yeah, and. Um, I'm very grateful that I've been on this planet now 27 years without having a, a drop of alcohol. And uh, you here. Thank you. Well, it's it's you know, it's one Good day at a time. We're, Good for fucking you. Yeah. Thank you. And um, again, no cure. But um, it, meat and dairy is an addiction, hmm. and the dairy part has been documented. There's a great book called the the, uh, the Cheese Trap. Hmm. Cheese is concentrated dairy, so the addictive component is greater in the cheese. And uh, you got to read The Cheese Trap because yeah. it shows you why cheese and dairy, cheese in particular, dairy in general is addictive, is that nature put um, a sort of morphine-like, uh, drug-like uh, ingredient in the mother's, the cow's breast milk to get the baby to drink the breast back. milk. And, and so humans are getting hooked on dairy. Yeah. And obviously, when you talk about addiction, it's... We just talked about it. Genetic, environmental, right? Uh, societal. Mm -hmm. So you have the genetic component with meat and dairy. You have the uh, societal component. Look at the ads. Sure. They are sexualizing meat. Yeah. You look at these ads. It's designed to make your mouth water. It's almost like a sex scene with the dripping mm -hmm. drops of the steak with the sizzle, right? Yeah. They're equating eating animals to patriotism, family values, mm -hmm. upward mobility, keeping, uh, making friends, popularity, patriotism. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, a lot of this is done by would-be uh, filmmakers who are not from the United States. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a huge percentage of British filmmakers doing commercials to make money, you know, and, hmm. but they're, yeah. So, um, uh, they're very sophisticated. They are, um, brainwashing people. Okay. So you've got completely. this conditioning and, um, those, those are the things we're up against. Mm -hmm. This is not something where it's just your rational mind. So when you're in an addict mind, you're not in control of your mind. The addiction rules you. This is why some of the smartest people are the worst addicts. Because mm -hmm. yeah. they are, that smart brain of theirs is working to fulfill the addiction. <laughs> sure. Yeah. They're rationalizing their behavior and explaining away. And, in yeah. the most brilliant terms. <laughs> because they're so smart. Because the yeah. addiction has taken over the brain. You must have been a very good addict. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Uh, that's the dynamic. And so the real question I think for me is how do you deal with addiction? Yeah. How do you get people to hit bottom? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you could just Google, uh, what happens when people get sober, they hit bottom. So it's some huh. really horrible embarrassment or terrible thing that happened. In really? my case, I made a fool of myself at a party in Hollywood and I went into a blackout and uh, the next day... So what was this party? It was just like a... It was, was a, a Hollywood party. It and it happened to be like, a, this is your life party for me. Everybody okay. was there. My ex-husband was there. My agent was there. My best friends were there, co-workers. And uh, I was teaching people how to do snake bites, huh. which is this thing where you... I could keep it together 
pretty much with wine, but when tequila entered the picture, forget about it. And that was what happened. Somebody brought a <laughs> big vat weakness. of tequila, oh. and all bets were off. And this is you were a journalist at this time? Yes. Okay. So you're and an aspiring journalist trying to... Were you working in New York? Or no, I was working here in LA. LA. I was a okay. news anchor. You were a news anchor. And, yeah, I was okay. a news anchor. You got this party, and you got too much tequila. Well, I'm at this party, yeah, okay. and I had too much tequila. I blacked out... Oh. Um, I had a boyfriend at the time. Let's uh-huh. talk about the fact that I'm an out lesbian too. Let's not forget about that. <laughs> yeah. That's talk. That's called burying the lead. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> he carried me out over his shoulder, and I woke up the next day, and oh, I ex- carried you out on his shoulder. Yes. That's how bad you are. I think so. That sounds dangerous. I don't remember. I wasn't out. there. I was. Yeah, you were there. You were um, out. <laughs> so uh, the next day, I woke up with uh, just horrible. Like, who was that monster? Oh, mm-hmm. that was me. Damn. And that's called a moment of clarity. Sure. And so for the first time, because I'd had those moments before, and by the way, I never got a DUI. Mm-hmm. I, I was a garden variety. Like, I thought I was like, oh, I'm an edgy, well, an yeah, edgy yeah. interest. No, I'm just sure. a garden variety. What did, what did your boyfriend, and did your family know about this? And did this, what? this particular incident, what did your boyfriend and your family say about no, it? No, he they, had said, he had said. encouraging you and enabling you? No, or he had you said, you have two more of these, and I'm out of here. So really? he actually had gone so he downstairs. Wow. He had gone downstairs to sleep on the couch, but I thought he had left. Huh. So a couple of dynamics thought. at work. Huh. One, I woke up. I felt, oh, God, the horror. Oh, what did I do? Oh, no. Yeah. Ah. Then I, I, I see he's gone. Oh, he's, he's finally left. Okay. He warned me. Well, the th- most important dynamic was that I had an action point. A huh. friend of mine had gotten sober recently and had bug- been bugging me to get sober too. Wow. So... Prior to that point, I never really had in my mind, of course I had many action points, but I never had it in my mind that I had an action point. So I said, oh, okay, there's only one thing I do. They call it the gift of desperation. I went into the back room. I called my friend Abbott. I said, Abbott, you're right. I need help. That was the first time that I ever really did, ever did that. And I've never had a drink again. Wow. And... That was your last drink yes. after that now, incident. When I walked Damn. back into the room, to the living room, there I saw my boyfriend on the couch. Huh. If I had seen him, I would not have made the call. Really? But I had to have that gift of desperation. There's nothing else right. for you to do. So taking that analogy, right? Yeah. And here's the other thing that happened. I had a psychic shift. Yeah. And Can I, can I just ask you a question yeah, before you move on to sure. the other story? Because this is really interesting to oh, me. Oh, okay. Because I, I think I told you, like I'm... Fascinated about this for personal reasons because I'm trying to figure some shit out in my social life with some friends. What, but but also, what, what, is you it, think it about require? it in terms of meat and dairy. Yeah. There's a parallel. No, there is a parallel. And let's talk about the parallel. But on alcoholism, does it require someone who's gone through that themselves? Was that important to you for you to be reached? Yes. Okay. So if, like, I've never had a drink in my life. <laughs> so maybe I'm not the best advocate That's why you're for, a constitutional attorney. Yeah, you know, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's why I'm a loser who's 40 years you're old with no loser. girlfriend. But uh, I, I've, I've had this experience of trying to help friends with various substance abuse, alcohol, whatever it is. And, and I just haven't had a lot of success. So maybe what you suggest is you really need to find someone who's at least had those experiences to be the advocate. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Because I think, I mean... My sense is I really try not to be judgmental. I, I really, you know, come at it from, because I, I don't know. I don't even know what the experience of alcohol is like. Maybe I, I even come at it thinking maybe the person's not alcohol. I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know because I have no idea what alcoholism is. I don't know what alcohol does to you. I've never had a drink in my life. So, I, but I, it seems to me there's a problem. And so I just kind of frame it that way. And still, even though I'm not even saying I know that what you're doing is wrong, they still see the judgment 
and just turn away and just kind of get resentful and angry, even just about broaching the conversation. Just like when you way. tell people you don't need to eat that steak. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's they easier get for another mediator actually to say that than for vegan to tell them about some ways. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, it could be a parallel there. I never thought of that. Yeah. But um, yeah. Uh, I think it definitely opens a window into how we can uh, apply it. Uh, yes. If you don't have it, you can't really understand it. Hmm. And the thing about addiction is it's not a moral failing. It it's yeah, you're right. a disease. It is. Yep. And there is no choice yeah. involved. Okay? It's a dichotomy. The only choice, the only power you have is the power to realize you have no power. Addiction. Yeah. And so it's, an addiction. it's not really a choice. And that's the sad part of what's happening with meat and dairy is yeah. that people we're talking to people use it use the alcohol analogy you got to st- when i was in my disease i didn't want to hear it mm-hmm. in fact if i had a party and somebody came over and said oh i don't drink i don't want i'd look at them funny hmm. I'm like what's wrong with you why don't I've you i've had know? a lot of those looks in my life yeah exactly <laughs> always look at me like right. that <laughs> what's wrong with you yeah. and then and, and also there's this this sense of you feel you're morally superior to me. Yeah. No, and I think so that's true. it's exactly like the meat and dairy yeah. issue. People resent it because on some level they know you're right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just like on some level, those people who weren't drinking, I was jealous of them. Yeah. I was like, why is it that they don't need to do this to have fun? Interesting. Okay, because so my So you think whole- it's wrong just to have even a drink a night or like a drink a week? Do you think it's a bad thing for people to do that even? For who? Who are you talking about? No, yeah. I don't okay, care what so, anybody does. I'm okay. talking about me. I, sure, that makes yeah. sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I just want to, yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I don't mean, uh, no, I, I, I'm not, I'm not so policing not anybody else's okay. behavior. I, I'm just saying that uh, trying to understand the psychology of what's going to make people open up. So, yes, it's, it's always better if, if somebody has had the experience, mm-hmm. right? So if you're a sex addict, you want somebody who's a sex addict who can understand that experience, Not a virgin. right? <laughs> right. Uh, if you're a food addict, sure. right? If you're a gambling addict, certainly somebody who's a gambling addict would, would have a better understanding of what's going on in the head, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because for the, for the person on the other side, it's like, well, why can't you just stop? Yeah. Right? Well, there there's no choice. Yeah, the person no has choice. no choice. It's a disease. They've it's, been hijacked yeah. by the addiction. Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh it's tricky. It's very tricky. But um the 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 one other thing I could say when I had I would say it's kind of a miracle. Uh I never used to believe, I was a very cynical person until I got sober. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like gallows humor. Oh, I'm a tough reporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, all that all that nonsense. But um <laughs> <laughs> um, you are a tough reporter. Well, I thought you know I had a little <laughs> I had a little stupid swagger I'd call yeah. it. Um, and now when I see other people with that, I'm like, what a jerk. <laughs> you can see, yeah, it I can see it in other people. I'm like, oh god, For but I record, was just like that. I think you've got swagger. It's not stupid swagger. <laughs> oh, thank it's fucking you. amazing swagger. I love your swagger, James. <laughs> I'm gonna swagger around here. Good. Um, but anyway. Um, the psychic shift that occurred in my mind was it's not that I won't have a drink tonight. Cause I had said that to myself many times in the morning. Oh, I'll never do that again uh-huh. with all absolute certainty. Yeah. And then by the evening I was having a drink because e- even before you, you, you decided you were going to get sober. Yeah. You, you had been telling yourself. Of course. Okay. I tried everything. I tried, uh, only drinking on weekends, only drinking wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what tr- would cause you to drink if you were telling yourself in the morning? You have no not, choice. Because you have no choice. But I'm just trying to understand like what the process is. Well, okay. Here's the thing. Is that 
the psychic shift that occurred when I got sober was mm-hmm. instead of saying to myself, I don't, I won't drink tonight. I, I will not drink tonight. That's willpower. Willpower sure. does not work Worth, effectively yeah, against addiction. Yeah. It does not. Hmm. It's a self-defeating mechanism. Sure. Willpower creates stress and anxiety. Anxiety yeah. and creates want, yeah. a desire for relief, hence cravings. Yeah. And wow. cravings lead to a binge. Binge leads to remorse. The remorse wears off. You realize the world didn't end. The sky's still there. Then the cravings start again. It's a cycle. Jesus, that so awful. <laughs> the psychic shift that I experience is I don't have That's to drink. Not. Okay. I and I had that thought in my head. I was like, "Whoa, I don't have to do this." The mm-hmm. dignity of choice. Yeah. Okay. The dignity of choice, and this is what I think we need to impart to people who we are asking to give up this terrible habit, meat and dairy, which is just like, in my opinion, heroin or alcoholism or any of the other addictions, is that. It's not that we're saying you have to give something up. Mm-hmm. You are liberated from this. Yeah. You are liberated yeah, from exactly. this. Yeah. And of course, like many people who get sober, I thought, well, my life's over. I'll never enjoy a sunset again. I'll never go skiing again because I used to love après ski at the right. bar. I'll never, uh, I'll never dance at a party. Sir. Okay. Well, guess what? That was all my ridiculous projection sure i and i still go out and make a complete fool of myself sure. on a regular basis <laughs> you and, can dance over i know this too I it's a lot of fun ass of myself on a regular basis and i remember it now <laughs> i know you remember uh, so um that's the same thing people have these projections of what their life will be like, like if they sure. give up meat and dairy i'll never go to a restaurant again yeah i'll never go to a party again yeah, never have thanksgiving with the family again exactly yeah. well that a might be true <laughs> Come on, Jane. We have vegan Thanksgiving. You can still have Well, you know, you have to get your family to go along with it. That's true. That's so true. Um, I've done that. And it's you not, have? Not okay. even hard, yeah. Just make the food for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> You're the chef. It's a, it's a whole battle of wills, you know. It that's is. the whole thing that goes on. And yeah. I, I'm also not big on holidays. Oh, yeah? I, well, first of all, as a reporter, which I was officially a reporter, like, under contract for 38 years at various places, uh-huh. I worked because I was single. Mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. married briefly, but mostly I was single, had no kids. I ended up working all the holidays, all the time. Mm. And I never objected to it. Like, mm. well, can you work Christmas Eve? Can you work New Year's Eve? Can you work Thanksgiving? And of course, I covered a lot of these events, like the dropping of the ball and things sure. like that. So I kind of got used to holi- holidays, working not, holidays. Yeah, sure. And I feel like holidays have become this big marketing thing. Mm. Uh, I mean, to celebrate the birth of Jesus, what do we got to go out and destroy? Yeah, I don't sure. know how many trees and kill yeah. all these trees and buy all these packages and yeah. get all the give people all a bunch of junk they don't want. Yeah. And um, uh, so I feel like but they're also time for families to come together. I like the holidays. You do. Yeah. Well, we don't do a lot of that yeah. shit in our family. Yeah. But, I mean, so for example, Christmas. I mean, I'm Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> I like I Christmas. Even, is the one I like. Oh, do I do you? Like, I, I don't like. I'm not even sure yeah. who Santa Claus is. Like, who the hell is this guy? And it doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, why is he coming down our chimney? That sounds creepy. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. But I still like the opportunity to bring my family together. You know, it's great to see. Yeah. Oh, of course. You ever seen of course. For a while. Spend an entire day and just have delicious food with each other and, and rest and relax. I mean, that's that's the nice thing about it. And and I think the fact that food is such a big part of it is a hindrance for a lot of people until we envision the alternative and recognize you can't have a vegan Christmas. You can't have a vegan Thanksgiving. And it's sustainable. It's delicious. It's often cheaper. You know, turkey's expensive. And especially if you want organic turkey that's not going to be filled with all the hormones and drugs and all the nasty shit that really you shouldn't be feeding your kids anyways, just from a health perspective. 
you know, just get the tofurkey from, from Trader Joe's and you'll be just as happy. It's delicious. So. Yes. And, and we just got to get those other people to listen and go along. Let's do it. I mean, we That's have a situation doing. where people are afraid of vegan food, which is totally insane. See, I'm all uh, in favor of this plant-based movement. Like mm-hmm. some people are like, well, plant-based isn't pure, blah, blah, blah. It's like, sure. I understand the need for vegan at a vegan standard. In fact, we work with BVEG Vegan Certification cool. and um, she's a partner with us. And uh, uh, Carissa Kranz, a, a vegan from birth. Mm-hmm. Brilliant attorney, hmm. um, really a great person. You should talk to her. She's really fascinating. I'd love to meet her. Carissa Krantz? Car- Carissa Krantz, yes. She hmm. does. She's established uh, the number one vegan certification company in the world. So okay. she certifies products as really vegan. Cool. And her point is, if you say plant-based, it's kind of like natural. Hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean really technically 100% vegan. vegan. Interesting. So she has that, and I agree with her. But in terms of a societal change, I think... I don't care about a word. If people never said the word yep. vegan again, we're just about let's reduce the and eliminate the animal suffering Suffer, and the sure. killing yep. and the human health problems and the environmental damage. I mean, the environmental damage is extraordinary and yeah. it's coming back to haunt us. And um, people, even with the pandemic, they're not making the connection. During the whole Ukraine tragedy, which is just such a horrible tragedy, and uh I, I will say, along with your courageous acts, that woman in the TV station who held up that sign uh, at the oh, yeah, Russian Marina, team. Yeah, oh, my God. What a hero. What, what guts. What yeah. guts. Yeah. What courage to Absolutely. do that. I admire people with courage because I'm not sure that I'm the most courageous person in the world. I, I think um, you've got a lot of courage. I don't know. I've never <laughs> been arrested. That's not um, a demonstration of courage. There's a lot of ways to have courage. Being a journalist, trying to fight for animal rights yeah, in a climate well, that's that difficult. That takes some. There's definite. Me. There's levels. Okay, <laughs> you're on a higher, higher. Uh, you're on the double black diamond. Um, but um, what was I saying? I've totally lost my train of thought. Oh, I interrupted you. I'm yeah. Sorry. No. No. I'm sorry. I talked too much. You were talking about the vegan plant based, the oh, dynamic, yeah. and how we just have to right. use the terminology that's going to work best for. Yeah. suffering, I think. Yeah. yeah. Whatever's yeah. less threatening. Yeah. It's less scary. If people are scared, yeah. if we put ourselves in their shoes, they're scared to do something. It feels like that's a religious thing almost. I'm I'm becoming a born again something yeah. or other. Uh if it if if it's it's a process, not an event for them. Yeah. yeah. Some people will have a moment of boom, I'm vegan. Other people, it's gonna be a process that's sure. gonna take them a while. If the word plant-based is more inviting, which mm-hmm. it is to a lot of Americans apparently. Let them let them go with that word. Yeah, it's not about words, mm-hmm. and we don't want an exclusive club. We want everybody to be in this. Yeah, that's why right. we started Unchained TV as an app that's going and a streaming network to people who are not vegan. Mm-hmm. We got to get out of the vegan bubble. How many times have you gone to a a, a screening of a film and you look? And it's everybody it's in vegans. the, it's all vegans. Well, we already know this. <laughs> yeah. And now we're going to re-traumatize ourselves with horrific video and sure. have nightmares. Yeah. No, yeah. you got to reach another audience. So I, I, we've talked about your experience as a journalist. You talked about your experience of addiction. We haven't actually said too much about your experiences of animals. And, and, you know, you mentioned a little bit that your family was pescatarian, vegetarian, maybe even fake vegetarian at fake, times. Fake pescatarian. Fake pescatarian at <laughs> there times. There you go. Um, and the fact that your mom had this pig when she was growing up, mm-hmm. which sounds like such a beautiful story. And mm-hmm. honestly, it almost seems like your life and her life had some parallels because what happened to Mr. Monday is kind of similar to what happened with your mom and her pig. Um, but tell me more, I mean, as you're, you're giving neck scratches to, to little um, Foxy. Yeah. Um, 
tell me about how your relationship with animals developed. Because, you know, I think journalism is a tough business where you're working a lot. And to a certain extent, you have to be desensitized to suffering because, especially as a crime journalist, I mean, you're seeing a lot of people in fucked up situations, murders, rapes, killings, all sorts of awful things. What made you connect to animals and their suffering? Well, uh, I just think what's happening to animals on such a massive scale is just so clearly and obviously morally reprehensible. Mm -hmm. It's also about justice. And as Dr. Silas Rao said, our entire society is based on death, disease, and destruction. Death for the animals, disease for the humans, and destruction for the planet. Mm. To me, it is the most important uh, social justice movement of our time. And I'm for all the other social justice movements. Don't get me wrong. It's not an either or. But if our planet is unlivable, mm-hmm. it really doesn't matter what our politics are. We're all dead. Yeah. And we're barreling toward a climate apocalypse right now at a yeah. high rate of speed. And uh, we're, we're moving the deck chairs around on the Titanic, and I've thrown a couple of metaphors there <laughs> together. Yeah. But um, it's not just me saying it. There's a great documentary called Breaking Boundaries. Mm. I think it's on Netflix. Uh, okay. David Attenborough. Hmm talks about there's certain boundaries. Once you cross them, there's no, no going back. back. Yeah. Habitat destruction. We are destroying the habitat for wildlife. Yeah. Wildlife extinction. Once, at the rate we're going, we're going to have virtually no wild animals within a decade. Yeah. Okay? That's going to trigger an ecological collapse. There's a huge percentage of the food that requires pollination. The bees rely... It, when we destroy the, the, the natural hierarchy of animals and insects, we are dooming ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great um, a scientist, Dr. Peter Carter, I believe is his name, and he is um, an IPCC reviewer. Mm-hmm. And he said... And the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on, on climate, climate change. change. It's like the most established and renowned organization compiling all the research on climate change into a consensus. Yes. Of experts. Mm-hmm. Although we have to say the UN, there's a lot of controversy about the for UN sure. statistics because they have official yep. official partnerships with the Meat Sec- Secretariat yeah, and the Dairy sure. Council and the Egg Council mm-hmm. uh, or Egg Organization. Um, but he said, look, um, when a temperature hits a certain level, crops fail. Hmm. And they're going to fail on a mass scale. Sure. And we're going to experience food shortages. Yeah. And he said, it's going to manifest. You're going to go into the grocery store and you're going to see empty shelves where there used to be bread and where there used to be other staples. Yeah. He said, we're not preparing for that. And when you think about it, why aren't we preparing for that? Well, why would the government let that happen? Because the government's been co-opted by the meat and dairy industry. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. they're not looking for that data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're beating their chests about drought, but they're not looking at the fact that California, with I think a couple of million cows, well, they're consuming a huge amount of water. They're polluting a sure. huge amount of water. No, we got to focus on the almonds. Why? Yeah. Because the meat dairy industry has co-opted the um, the state government. Yeah. And so, when it hits, because they're asleep at the wheel, because mm-hmm. they're just concerned about protecting their own industry, it's going to create a an absolute apocalypse. I mean. The immigration crisis that is going to occur globally as large swaths of the earth become uninhabitable. In fact, 
There was one small article in the New York Times, an opinion piece, where somebody had gone down to the Northern Triangle where a lot of the immigration was stemming from to the United States from Latin America. And they said, oh, you know, all these people had been subsistence farmers on their land for generation after generation. And now that land is not, uh, is become untenable. It's not temperate. It goes from extreme winds to extreme rains and you can't grow crops. So of course they've got to leave and they've got to go to the cities. No parents can let their children starve. Right. So you're going to see just collapse, not to mention the extreme weather. We're, we're seeing hundred years floods every couple of years. We're seeing the tornadoes that are far more, I mean, we're just on the appetizer level. Yeah. California wildfires. I mean, I know people's houses have burned down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are on the precipice. We've, we only have a certain amount of time to turn it around. And one of the big problems is, you mentioned the UN, okay, they're not paying attention. Yeah. The COP26 nonsense that happened in Glasgow, we, Unchained TV actually had a reporter there. Hmm. And she did completely different stories than you saw on mainstream media. Sure. By the way, there were plenty of vegan signs there. You wouldn't see any on, the on mainstream television. media. Yeah. Okay, I looked for them. Mm-hmm. She had a whole bunch on her report. Not only that, she went into the cafeteria and showed the menu and showed the ham sandwiches that they were serving yeah. at the climate conference. Now, they had a climate price tag. They had a carbon price tag on their food items. Hmm. And even the Washington Post wrote up an article saying, well, since the ham, since the meat items had such a higher climate footprint than the vegan items, why did you serve, serve them? The meat, yeah. You know, so it kind of backfired on them. Hmm, but they're controlled by the meat and dairy industry. Yeah. So this industry, you notice how the environmentalists are all focusing on fossil fuels, yeah. but they're not talking about animal agriculture. Well, uh, it was back in 2006 that the UN issued a report called Livestock's Long Shadow oh, sure. that said that animal agriculture is responsible for more greenhouse gases than all transportation yeah. combined. Then, uh, a couple of years later, some World Bank economists uh, did another analysis and said that animal agriculture is responsible for 51%. Yeah. Then, the United Nations made a deal with the Meat Secretariat and with the other aspects of the meat and dairy industry, and they revised their estimates down to... 14.5%. Mm-hmm. Can we believe that number? I think not. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Silas Rao has done a paper saying that animal agriculture is responsible for 87% of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, people have said, oh, that's nonsense, it's rubbish. Let me just say this. I'm no scientist. Sure. It's there for anybody to read. He will answer any question, question. and debate anyone at any time. And uh, somebody from a prestigious university had hit him with a whole bunch of arguments. He answered them. They're online. And that person went away because he answered all those questions. Hmm. I'll check so, it out. Yes. Because I've always thought that, you know, that we as animal advocates do exaggerate the climate impact. I mean, I think not, not that it isn't a huge impact, whether it's 14% or 18% or 51%, it's massive. Or 87%. Or 87%. Whatever the exact figure is, it's clear that it's a massive contributor to climate change. And that methane is, what is it, 43 times more impactful greenhouse gas and carbon dioxide. And it lasts right. less time. Yeah, so so it's, it's, if it's, we got rid of the methane, yeah, we could it, turn it around. The impact would be really massive yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Um, but as of all movements of any type, whether it's a fashion movement, a, a sports movement, a political movement, you know, my, my view is we have had the tendency to exaggerate. But I'm also very far from the research at this point. At one point, I was close to the research because back in the mid-2000s, I was an economics scholar who was diving into the data and reading the reports much more carefully. But to me, the point is it doesn't even matter. Like Everybody who seriously looked at this problem has said we cannot get to carbon neutrality and we cannot get 
frankly, even to 400 parts per million, you know, which is bad. You know, we'd like to stick to 350, but 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide equivalents without transforming our food system. And if not completely eliminating, at least massively, massively reducing our meat consumption. And study after study after study has shown this. And, and that, to me, is a central point. And but, uh, President Biden, yeah. uh, because this is a bipartisan problem, and both parties are horrible in it. President Biden uh, just allocated a billion dollars to build new slaughterhouses oh, and uh, yeah. said that this was a way to give farmers dignity. Yeah, we did this in California, too. I mean, Newsom Dear did the God. same thing. So it's happening in California. It's happening in D.C., and Biden also appointed Tom Vilsack to be Secretary yeah. of Agriculture in Vilsack. I mean, going to your point about the meat industry controlling the government, I mean, that is a great example of legalized bribery for, for years before Vilsack was appointed to become the Secretary of the Department of Agriculture. He had basically a sinecure position, a position where he wasn't even really working, as far as anyone would tell, as the president of, the, I think, the American Dairy Export Council, making a cool million of dollars a year for doing nothing. And he knows that when he, he leaves the the Agri Department of Agriculture, he's going to have a job like that if he serves the interests of the industry, right? If he doesn't, he's not going to get that job. He's not going to have that cool million of easy money on the table. And, you know, uh, I think we have to acknowledge this and recognize this to try and solve the problem because until we see the bad incentives of some of the people making decisions and telling us, you know, what we should and should not eat, we won't understand what the truth of the matter is. So, you well, know, these people so these aren't... Are that's smart. Yeah. Okay. Here's the thing. All these smart people, right? Yeah. And they're all concerned about making more money. Mm -hmm. What's the, what's the, what's the value of money if our planet is not livable? Yeah. If you can't walk outside without collapsing air. because mm -hmm. of the heat, what difference does it make? And also how much money do you need? Yeah. Like, where is even the possibility of spending this money? I think Jeff Bezos' <laughs> ex-wife said something or was quoted or there was a comment about her that she couldn't spend it fast enough. She couldn't give it away fast enough. Yeah. And tragically, she's decided to give, uh, I think, $50 million to 4-H. Yeah, I think I heard about that. Wow. Yeah. So that we, we can... Because she seems like a thoughtful person who well, might be open. We did a, a little campaign. Oh, did you? Yeah, but mm. I mean, with the Save Movement. But yeah, you know, we issued a news release okay. with the Youth Climate Save. Did they respond at all? The what's her foundation called? Does it even have a name? I, like name I don't have all yeah. the answers yeah, uh, at my fingertips. But yeah. the point is, uh, well, what my hope was at least she could amend her donation to sure. to exclude anything involving animals because they do other other projects. You yeah. know. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Yeah. Not all of their projects are horrible. Mm -hmm. We can't just paint everything with a broad brush. Yeah. Sure, a lot of kids might be helped by 4-H, but not in the raising and falling in love with an animal to send, send them to slaughter, slaughter department, yeah. which is going to traumatize. They've traumatized sure. so many people have been traumatized. Let me put it this way, for legal reasons, there have been many, many stories. Zoe Rosenberg and many other people have been sure. approached by kids uh, who have raised these animals who are desperate to try to get them out yeah. so that they don't go to auction and slaughter. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So I, I asked you about your connection to animals, and let me just clarify the question, because what I'm most interested in is, and which I think I haven't heard you talk too much about, is your personal relationship with animals and how that's influenced your activism. And, you know, I think most people who see you see you as like, I mean, you describe yourself as, I'm not a tough reporter type. I'm like, 
No, you are. I mean, <laughs> anyone who sees you for like five minutes or even just talks to you, you're tough. And, you know, you ask tough questions and you just have like a toughness to, to your personality. I mean, you're the sort of person who just, I mean, you can feel it in your voice. You can feel it in your body language. I mean, you're a very tough person. But one of the striking things about the first time I came into this house, which was really beautiful for me, was just seeing how you melted around your little kids. And by kids, I mean, because um, Jane's gay and, you know, she's probably not going to have any biological children. I mean her dogs. Um, so, and you've got a dog who's sick right now, right? Yes, I yeah. do. So just tell me about your relationship with animals and how that's influenced both your reporting and your activism over the years. Was one of the reasons you started reporting on these issues? We haven't even gotten to that, which we won't have time to today, another time. Yes. But was one of the reasons you report on these issues, did you have a dog or a cat at home? Well, I, I always had that connection because of Mr. Mr. Monday. Yeah. And uh, Did you get another dog after that as a kid? Well, no. No? No. But um, I did have a cat. I uh-huh. had a cat. Um, and uh, uh, I had a dog. When I got out here, I got, I got a dog uh, out of the shelter named Baja, mm-hmm. and she was amazing. Absolutely fabulous. And uh, she was a movie dog. Right, in, I got her in the South LA shelter. And I, as soon as I saw her, it was like a casting call. What a dog Aww. with a black eye right out of a, uh, really out of a movie. And I, I was working all the time. So this elderly couple uh, would would walk her. And actually, she lived with them like a good huh. portion of the time. Wow. Her ashes are with um, the widow who's still right down the block. Really? And, so this, it was here? Yeah. And... They would take her everywhere. Uh-huh. The most adorable couple, uh-huh. Irvin Darlene Felstein. Huh. And uh, he was super smart and knew a lot about politics. Uh, he passed away, but they would take I her. I thought you were th- talking about Baja for oh. a second. There. I was like, damn, <laughs> this dog is more impressive than, than I thought. Smart but, uh, a lot about politics. Yeah, they would take her to the dentist. They would take her here, there, and everywhere. And sometimes when I'd be out with her, they, they'd say, uh, people would come up and say, hi, Baja. And I'd say, how do you know Baja. And they'd say, "Oh, everybody knows Baja." This this elderly couple were taking Baja was having the time of her life oh, with this. With this, yeah. So I love Baja. And then Baja became ill and died right here in this living room. Oh. And I had to put her down. It was always the worst decision. Sure. And get this. So her ashes were coming back, mm-hmm. right? And at the same moment that her ashes came back, guess who was knocking on the door, unannounced and uninvited? Shannon Keith, the founder huh. of Beagle Freedom Project, huh. and she had a little tiny puppy in her hands. Oh, wow. And she came in, and the guy handed me the ashes, and she came in with the puppy. puppy. What wow. are the chances of this? And I said, what? How? What? I said, what, These... Why was she here with the puppy? That's well, such a she weird said, thing. Well, she was a friend of mine. She said, <laughs> okay. I've been taking care of this little puppy. puppy I can can't, you take her? I see. I can't keep her any, I can't keep him any longer. And I said, ah. Oh, Shannon, it's too soon. I, yeah. Look, I'm just getting that. She said to me, she said very firmly, it's never too soon to save a life. Wow. And she said that, I said, so okay. It's true too. Yeah. So Powerful I said, words. okay. And I took that little guy and named him Cabo. What Cabo, kind of dogs were these? These, were these, these are all runts, little you know, little, little runts. Tiny, okay. Yeah. Just mutts of various kinds. Mutts of various kinds. Mutts okay. are the best. Yeah, mutts are the best. Uh, there's a lot of designer dogs in this neighborhood. And, <laughs> You know, they, it's not their fault. It's I never. They're, not their yeah, fault. they're, they're yeah. beautiful too. Yeah, you know, we're all um, beautiful. But uh, uh, I said, okay. So I named him Cabo, which is uh-huh. a small town in Baja, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. So Cabo unfortunately passed away almost exactly a year ago tomorrow. Sorry. And uh, yeah, I met Cabo. Then. Yeah, yeah, he was a fierce. Oh my god, man of the house. Very patriarchal, very, <laughs> very bossy. Like your dad. Yeah, kind of like my dad. Kind of like my dad, yeah. Oh. And very serious dog. Really? He's very serious. And, uh, 
No, here's an interesting story. During the pandemic, again, Shannon, I think it was, I was at the very start, people were giving up their dogs because people were like leaving and sure. it, it ended up being uh, uh, a lot of people adopting dogs. But at the very beginning, it was very dicey for mm-hmm, shelters. Mm-hmm. They were closing down. They couldn't. Sure. So I was interviewing Shannon and I just spontaneously made a commitment to take a dog, mm-hmm. which I should have thought about, you know. So <laughs> I thought, well, there's a tiny a little decision. dog named Tiny who's a senior dog. She was about four pounds. I said, well, what, what big deal could that be? Sure. Well, I brought in Tiny, and guess what? Cabo got really angry. Hmm. He was angry. He stopped sleeping with me. This is wow. this shows you the depth of the emotional life sure. of animals. And he was furious. He was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what did you do? What did you bring into our yeah. home? And, um, you know, I felt horrible because Tiny, it's no fault of Tiny, and sure. she was obviously a traumatized little dog who had been dumped at the shelter. Sure. And she had had apparently a tough life. But... You know, it really, really made me aware of how intense and observant and psychologically aware. I mean, he literally would not sleep in the bed, which mm. we had slept together. And he'd come out here and just, I'd put him in the bed and he would just look at me and just not happy. jump out. Not happy. And he was clearly angry. Sure. And unfortunately, you know, he was old and then he became ill and... um had various diseases. I don't think it caused his physiological diseases, but I mm-hmm. think it. I think it was a blow to him, hmm. and I feel guilty so ended about up that. Adopting Tiny. Well, yeah, Tiny died too. Tiny, Tiny was very old and sick, and uh, oh. I take her to the vet, and she actually died at the vet. When, when did she they die? Call me. What? When did Shine Tiny die? She died. Um, oh, about maybe I guess about four months after I got her. Oh. Okay. She was very old, and wow. yeah, these. You know, let me just say this, okay. Uh, we have a tendency to condemn people who drop their dogs off at shelters. Sure. But I can tell you from personal experience now, because uh, this has been something right now, mm-hmm. and I know doctors, vets are doing the best they can, but there's got to be some kind of program because yeah. the kind of bills that that rack up when your dog gets sick sure. are unbelievable. Yeah. Five and, figures sometimes. Yeah. You know, I mean, easily. they're just crazy. Yeah. And you think, well, wait a second, if I had given this to... DXE or PETA or, you know, I, it's, it's very, it, it really made me like very confused and like, am I doing the right thing? Sure. But as Freud said, we have to have compassion for others, but also consideration for ourselves and sure. our family members. Yeah, you're right. So, you know. You did but, the right thing. Yeah, I you have to the do right the right thing. thing. But the point the right is, there's got to be, we got to come up with something where yeah. people who are, there's got to be, you know, let me say something else about vets. So many vets go into the industry because they love animals and they are yeah. literally indoctrinated into becoming part of the machine that that preps animals for experimentation, preps animals for slaughter, um, actually forcibly impregnates them, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and they're forced to do all sorts of things that are also psychological torture mm-hmm. and break them down. And then they just follow orders, mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, so we need to completely transform the veterinary industry. I've talked to so many people about this, and there is a great um, organization that we just recently interviewed the head of who is trying to help veterinarians who are vegan, who are compassionate, who are animal activists stand up to the industry. It's like... Yeah, that's, do- my, that's a good friend. She's actually one of the volunteers for our podcast, Crystal Heath, right? Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Crystal yeah, Heath. she works on this podcast. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> she helps me wonderful. Out the yeah. She's actually been in many of these but interviews doing audio. Do you for me. see? She's the, amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. Do you yeah. see what's happening? 
industry has been co op. Uh, yeah. The government has been co opted. The industry has uh, been co opted. Even the, the veterinary profession. The veterinary profession, right. the medical yeah. profession. Um, this is why it's a societal change that has to occur because um, they've infiltrated everything and mm -hmm. it's at the essence. And that's why the evolutionary process has to occur where once that light bulb goes on, I think that the ultimate question you're asking is how do we get that light bulb to go on? Yeah. What, how do you get that light bulb? And I get back to the gift of desperation. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah. We just have to get to that low point collectively as a society. That's kind of terrifying. Well, the, the pandemic didn't is, do it. Yeah. The question is if we get to that low point, whether we can claw back, I'm sure that's true of addiction too. Because some people are so low they can't get back. I mean, you've already destroyed your liver. I mean, I've got a friend, Diana, whose daughter just died. I think she was only like 40 years old of, of liver damage, you know, alcohol poisoning. And she was low. And maybe that could have been a moment that if she had survived, you know, she could have bounced back from and gotten off alcohol. But she didn't. She didn't make it. There's something called high bottoms and low bottoms. Yeah. So high bottom is you make an ass of yourself at a party. Okay. Sure. I'm not saying I was necessarily a high bottom, but sure. let's, let's just say for <laughs> argument's sake. A low bottom is somebody who yeah, drives in, in a blackout the wrong way down a freeway and yeah, kills yeah. You know, a dozen people and ends up uh, yeah. in jail for the rest of their lives and destroying sure. their life and other lives. So where, or, where or, um, are you on a personal level and then also societal hitting bottom? Yeah. Like, what's it going to take for people who know better to finally say, like these people at the New York Times, uh, for example... They, they have articles every so often. Mm -hmm. Ezra Klein has done uh, some really good articles. Yeah, there's He's amazing. Yeah, breakthrough articles. And mm -hmm. the same thing at CNN, uh, Fareed Zakaria has done some Fareed's good articles and good reporting. There's, there's The information is there. It's the denial mechanism. Yeah. What's it going to take? And uh, let me say, individuals. To me, Eric Adams is like mm -hmm. unbelievable hitting home runs mm. standing up and proudly saying even though he's not vegan he's plant-based yeah. apparently that came out sure but but he's yeah someone caught him basically eating fish i think <laughs> at a restaurant or something <laughs> it's like oh my god really i mean i wish he hadn't done it but it doesn't diminish the work he's doing yeah. he's still doing great work yeah. right so but we we you know cory booker there are these people who are standing up and not just being vegan but but, but or being plant-based but actively yep. promoting bills yeah for sure yeah I mean, Cory Booker was the one that came up with the Factor Farm Moratorium that we borrowed from and are hoping to pass in California, knock on wood. Knock Although, on wood. There's some complications that arose in the last day you might hear about. In fact, actually, when this podcast comes out, you probably will have already heard about it. But yeah. that's the way politics works. Well, we've been going for uh, over two hours now. No. Jane, what's last? Yeah, yeah. That's how much fun we're having, Jane. Um, what's just one piece of advice you give people who are trying to change, whether it's personal change or create some organizational change in their place of employment or their school? or even social change at a broader level. What's, what's one piece of advice you'd give? Download the Unchained TV app. There you go. Um, I'm half app. joking, but yeah, I'm no, not. please, Do it. please, it's download a great it. App. Honestly, it looks just like, and you know, the Netflix app. It looks like it's, it's, it's beautifully designed. I can't believe you did it for 50,000. You know, can I say that? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, <laughs> that, it's, it's an amazing app. These networks are spending billions and we're doing, we're doing it, and, it but we a, need, a we need budget. the vegan community. Yeah. Uh, and the animal rights community to join us because I'm it's going to take. It right after this podcast, it's going to take a village to provide yeah. the content. Yep. What is it? What are the? What are the uh, networks spending? They're spending it on original content. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're spending it on anchor talent. While we are doing some original content, 
We're not spending those billions. Sure. We can take all the incredible videos that all the vegans, the animal rights, the documentaries, everything, mm-hmm, and put mm-hmm. it on there. And that can be priceless. It can be sure. worth $2 billion. I agree completely. Yeah. So my advice is an activist. I have a couple of pieces of advice. And again, I'm flawed. I make mistakes every day. Like, every day I'm like, what was I thinking? Mm-hmm. What? But um, stop the infighting. Mm. I'm really sick of it. Yeah. If you have a problem, keep it off Facebook and Instagram. Um, I, we even say it on our website. If you have a problem, call the police or call a lawyer. Leave us out mm. of it. Sure. I am really sick of the infighting. Hmm. I will not participate. Now, obviously, there are exceptions. If somebody says an animal's in danger right now, you know, mm-hmm. obviously, we'll we'll try to help. But no, stop that infighting. There's yeah. people, institutions out there killing billions of animals. Yeah. Focus on them, please. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, don't waste your energy trying to get that holdout cousin or that neighbor who always says sarcastic things to change. Sure. Stop wasting your breath. Yeah. Take that energy and put it to reaching a lot of people with your social media. We yep. have 8 billion people on this planet, and we cannot educate them one by one. We yeah. have to use social media. Yep. And um, stop doing anxiety transfers. Like, I get things, t- we should do something about this. Mm-hmm. forward mm-hmm. well why don't you friggin do something <laughs> about it i mean yeah people i get all these emails like probably two dozen a day have yeah. your people do what this. people yeah, it's people. me on my couch you are my, my people yeah <laughs> you are my people so chihuahua please, my chihuahua it. foxy yeah. is my people i'm yeah. doing this by myself yeah uh, sometimes i wake up in the morning i go what was i thinking her plate. She's, she's got a sibling who's in the hospital yeah. right now oh, puppy she's very v- foxy you're busy right she said, call my agent. You know, I mean, I think when people do those sorts of anxiety transfers, yeah. my sense is they do it because they see you or I or someone else they're forwarding this anxiety-inducing communication to is more powerful than them. And one of the things I think that's really important for social change on a broad scale is for people to feel the power they have. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of people, like whether it's Me Too or Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter was not just Dorey McKesson and uh, Alicia Garza, you know, these founders of the movement pushing forward and creating all this policy change and awareness. It was literally millions and millions of people, black and sometimes non-black too, saying, you know what, I'm sick and tired of this and I feel like I have the ability to do something about this, even if it's something as simple as just retweeting a video. But a lot of people did even more. You know, I, I live in Berkeley, California, where I feel like half the population of Berkeley went out after George Floyd was killed. You know, we were marching in the streets. And it's it's because all these people felt like they were powerful that we started getting some institutional change. And, and whether it's veganism or environmentalism or racial justice, I think that's really good advice. Don't trance in anxiety. Realize you can overcome it yourself. Yeah, and just get active. In other words, let's get out of the vegan bubble. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff sharing happens where it's vegan to vegan sharing mm-hmm. about, isn't this awful? Uh, let's get out of the vegan bubble. There are incredible organizations like DXE, like yeah. PETA, like uh, uh, Defending Law for Animals, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, White Coat Waste. I, I deal with them every single day. For sure. So if you feel like uh, you can't get out there and go, let's say, to a vigil or go live at a cube, you can... Uh, share these stories. You can go to unchainedtv.com and share out stories. We're working hard, yeah. working till two in the morning, putting together articles about DXE. Call your uh, state senator and state assembly person. Uh, call the ag-, ag committee, whatever. And so read the articles, take the action points that are suggested and share out the article. Yeah. And yet sometimes 
it's harder to get people to do that yeah, than for them to get on Facebook and argue with somebody. Sure. Um, and let, often a fellow vegan, right? That sort of thing. Yeah. Someone who's even been in the movement and supporting the same cause you are. It's, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I was listening to a, a, a podcast that was very interesting. They talked about there is a seduction where there are things that we do that make us feel good, mm-hmm. okay? But they're not effective. And sure. then some of the things that are most effective may feel, feel like good. work. Yeah. We got to go to the things that are effective that feel like work. Yeah. It's yeah. not about making ourselves feel good yeah. or feeling sated. Oh, we've had our interaction for the day arguing with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we have tremendous power. I would also say let's look at some of the money we spend on discretionary items, like let's say alcohol. Mm-hmm. If somebody told me if we took all the money that people spend on alcohol mm-hmm. and put it into the movement, we would have more money than all the meat and dairy lobbyists. Mm. So we're a pretty big segment of the population now. Sure. So we need to start flexing our muscles sure. and giving money to organizations like DXE, like yeah. P- PETA, like these other groups. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're a nonprofit too. You sure. can donate to us. And, and you can see we have, I live here, but we have no offices. We have no merch. We mm-hmm. have no, every, I don't take a salary. Mm-hmm. Everything goes in. I donate to my own nonprofit. Everything goes into producing content, advertising the content, getting it out there. This is a mission. Yeah. And uh, uh, do it, do it, do it. Look, Ingrid Newkirk said, being sad doesn't help the animals. Mm-hmm. So I like to be happy. If I take action every day to help the animals, then I give myself permission to be happy and enjoy certain aspects of my life, go out Good. to dinner with a friend, whatever. And so don't, don't uh, wallow in the suffering. Take action. Take action. Sure. Take yeah. action. That's, that's my advice. And that makes you happier because you feel like you've accomplished something, done something good for the world. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jane. This is an awesome conversation. And I'm excited to have it again because there's a long list of things I didn't actually even get to (laughs) that I wanted to talk to you about, but we had a lot of fun. It was great. Thank you, Wayne. Thanks, Jane. Hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I never have even had a drink before in my life, so I can't say I have direct personal experience with some of the things that Jane was sharing with us about, but it definitely gave me a very vivid and concrete sense of how difficult the struggle is for so many people who are dealing with alcoholism, and, and maybe you'll be able to use some of those lessons to help someone in your life. But speaking of people helping each other in their lives, a lot of people helped me with this podcast, including all of you for listening and sharing it. But I also want to thank Shalola Fakis, who edited this podcast, Wani Rose, who's the co-executive producer, Crystal Heath, Priya Sohani, Julie Waldrup, all help out immensely behind the scenes. Um, And last thing I want to say is there's going to be some big changes in this podcast in the next few weeks. Uh, You'll hear more about them in an email. Stay tuned for that. But in a nutshell... I want to make this podcast more participatory. I want more of you to be involved in it in a very direct way. And we have some creative ways to try and do that, but I don't give anything away yet. So stay tuned for that email. In the meantime, thanks for listening. And please do share this podcast with a friend if you found it meaningful. Until next time.